But I like to say that I never left, the church left me, because I think I was raised with uh, a, a very magical worldview, if you're familiar with that theory. Um, my parents were teaching us kids about seer stones and polygamy and the coming of the New Jerusalem. And these types of topics were things I was fully aware of, fully comfortable with. And it was really only in the 90s and 2000s when the churches, uh, when the church was really like stamping down on that stuff, being like, no, 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 you can't talk about that, that I started being like, well, why not? Like, what's going on? Isn't this our religion? Welcome back, everyone. My name is Sam. And I'm Melissa. I grew up in the FLDS community. It is a polygamous group run by Warren Jeffs, and I moved out when I was 18 years old. I was raised LDS. Sam and I have been married for nine years and have two awesome kiddos. Yes, we do. If you're interested in just listening in today, we do have our podcast available. And please don't forget to like and subscribe. We are so excited today to have a very special guest. When we saw his video with Peter Santanello in the Mormonism series, we were, I, oh my gosh, I just had so many questions and was like, <laughs> he just seems like a wealth of knowledge. And we were so excited to be able to get him on. Benjamin Schaefer, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh man, that whole episode, I just kept turning to Sam and I was like, I love Mormon history. I love the, I love the, learning more about the fundamentals. Right. And so I know that may other people might think that's silly or be like, oh, that's interesting. Like, why would you have left if you're so interested in it? Or, you know, Sam left fundamental Mormonism. So how does that work? But it still intrigues me. And I'm really excited today because I kind of was telling Sam earlier that most of the time we have fundamentalists who have left fundamentalism and that's who we're interviewing and who we're talking to. And Instead of like growing up in polygamy, I feel like this is a chance to like hear someone grow into polygamy or grow into fundamentalism. And so I'm just super excited for you to be here. Yes. Thank you, Benjamin. And yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it as well. Obviously, coming from the FLDS, I know that every different group has different beliefs, I guess you could say, but all stemming back to the original teachings of the first leaders of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. So we're looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you once again for being here. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. And just a little bit of my background. Um, yeah, I'm in, I was raised mainstream LDS, but now I'm a 70 in Christ Church, uh, which is a fundamentalist group, as people always call us fundamentalists. Sometimes for a while there, we were trying to get the term Orthodox Mormon to stick, but that, you know, oh. it's hard to change. Uh, it's hard to change the vernacular. Um, but I do have a degree in history and I've studied church history extensively. I, I did work for CES for a little while. I um, was wow. trained as a seminary teacher. Uh, and so like that in the mainstream LDS. And um, I do present on historical topics at uh, places like Sunstone or uh, make the occasional uh, submission to like the John Whitmer Historical Association or Dialogue or something like that. So um, I'm, I'm well versed in church history and I'd love to talk about all the branches and uh, what connects us. Wow. That's awesome. That's My first awesome. question before we get into kind of starting with your LDS roots and origins, before we get into that, you said you were a 70. Is that similar to the quorums that there are in the LDS church where there's a 70, a branch of the 70 within general authorities? Is that similar? Well, the, yes, the, the structure is very similar. Kind of our interpretation is different, though. Um, if you're a 70 in the mainstream LDS church, well, first of all, they're a huge organization, right? So that's mm -hmm. more like being a corporate executive up there. And they they actually do get paid. And they get paid a ton of money. And it's, it's this big thing. Uh, being a 70 in a small church like mine, 
more or less it just means that I have a permanent calling to be a missionary, uh, always out there preaching and teaching and trying to share the gospel. Uh, but there's there's very little glamour to it. It just basically means I need to be out there, uh, well, I don't know, doing stuff like this and talking about the gospel. <laughs> okay, go. awesome. Thanks for clarifying that. Because yeah. as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, there's a word. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to be asking lots of questions <laughs> as far as comparing and contrasting a lot of the LDS doctrine. And then, like I said, I'm sure Sam will have lots of questions as far as comparing how he was raised as well. Yes. I'm, so you were brought up in the mainstream LDS church, and it sounds like you were very involved. It, you, you know, you were doing some of the, you said you taught seminary or you were, mm -hmm. or you were being prepared to teach seminary. Well I, did, well, I did both. I did the regular, the full CES training uh, thing, and then I did teach seminary for a time. Okay. Um, I didn't become a full-time release time seminary teacher, but I did. I, I taught in a release time seminary for a little while. And then after a year, I taught early morning seminary for a while in Arizona. Um, but I didn't, I didn't ever make a full career out of it. Okay. Okay. And how did you feel about your LDS upbringing? Like, was it something that you always cherished? Was it something that was hard for you? What was your upbringing like in the LDS church? My upbringing was good. I think that the thing that's uh, most surprising to me is that I like to say that I never left, the church left me, because I think I was raised with, well, and of course, you know, I'm a little bit older. So in the 1980s, my parents were teaching us kids about seer stones and polygamy and the coming of the new Jerusalem. And these types of topics were things I was fully aware of, fully comfortable with, uh, a, a very magical worldview, if you're familiar with that theory. Um, yeah. Dean Michael Quinn wrote a book, Just Within the Magical Worldview. Um, that was my, that was like the worldview I was raised in. You know, I was, I was always looking for gold plates or, uh, or some magical experience uh, and, and thinking that that was normal Mormonism. And it was really only in the 90s and 2000s when the churches, uh, when the church was really like stamping down on that stuff, being like, no, 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 you can't talk about that, that I started being like, well, why not? Like, what's going on? Isn't this our religion? Uh, so I guess you could say I was raised with a somewhat fundamentalist mindset, but it did not seem to me like we were outside the mainstream of the church in believing those things. That seemed very normal to me. Um, and yeah, it was good, but I, and I checked all the boxes, right? I, I served a full-time mission. I got married in the temple. I did all the stuff. I, I did my hundred percent home teaching. Okay. Maybe not every month, but most of the time I did my home teaching and um, served in, you know, leadership quorums and stuff like that. And, uh, and I just felt like, okay, I've, I've done what has been asked of me. But yeah. then I kept running in. But what ended up being the problem is I kept running into, well, yeah, but I want more. And wait, don't you guys believe in all this stuff? And I kept running into even church leaders who seemed to me not to really have much of a testimony because they'd be like, oh, well, we don't really talk about this or that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, why not? You know, well, the prophet Joseph Smith said such and such. And like in, um, in CES, for example, I, they'd be like, you can't quote Brigham Young. And I'd be like, okay, well, then I'll just find a quote from Joseph Smith where he said basically the same thing. And they'll be like, well, Joseph Smith never taught that. And I'll be like, well, let's look. <laughs> you know, we have the internet wow. now. We have all these documents. Now we have the Joseph Smith papers. And so I'd pull something up and be like, well, see, here's one from Joseph Smith. And they'd be like, that's outside the curriculum, brother. Please don't teach that. And I'd be like, okay, fine. And then I wouldn't teach that. But it felt frustrating because it was like, okay, my, my religion is this expansive thing covering all these topics. 
And they keep wanting to pigeonhole me into being like, no, this is the only the approved stuff. I see. Yeah. Do, do you feel like that the church just wasn't allowing you to believe what you felt that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and those early day prophets taught? Or do you feel that uh, you just needed and wanted more? Um, I mostly felt a little bit shocked when I would find um, not only mission presidents and CES directors, but 70s stake presidents that didn't even have a testimony of those things. I'm like, how did you rise to leadership if, you, if you're not on board? And then they would look at me like, well, if you're exploring these mysteries or whatever they want to call them, um, mm -hmm. if you're exposing this deep doctrine, then you're the apostate. And I'd be like, I'm not the apostate. You're the one who's, you're the one who's insulting the memory of the prophets, right? I thought that you just sustained the prophet seers and revelators as actual prophets, right? And they're like, well, yeah, but I'm like, no, but what's the problem guys? You know what I mean? Yeah. But they would be like, well, but, 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 but they're dead and we follow the living one. And I'm like, Unless the living one wants to get up and contradict the old ones. Which they do, right? But yes, you're right. Yeah. They do. That was one of the biggest shelf items for me, too. I was, I mean, when you're explaining what was going on, because I was raised in the 90s, early 2000s as a child. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember, you know, not knowing a lot of the stuff you're talking about being raised and knowing in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And as I would start asking questions about these type of things or start researching, like, I would talk to my dad who had served a mission and he would say, oh yeah, when I, when I was on my mission in the eighties, we talked about this stuff all the time. And this is the kind of stuff mm -hmm. we talked about and that was all normalized. And I'm like, well, they're not teaching me that. And then I feel like that comes to a point where you're like, okay, same thing that you're talking about. Like if the prophet says, and I always just went back to the fact that we are taught that the, the prophet is the mouthpiece of God. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And we're taught that if it's spoken over the pulpit, that it is going to be as if God is speaking. And so when I would start researching things and people would be like, well, that's, it's not necessarily, that's not doctrine. I kept being told that that's not doctrine. That's not doctrine. And I'm like, okay, well, if they're speaking as God, and then they try to say, well, he was just a man. He was just a man. And I'm like, well, mm -hmm. again, this was spoken over the pulpit. And I have these other scriptures that are saying that if it's spoken over the pulpit and it says that it, they say that it's revelation, then it should be from God. So why are you telling me there is no doctrine? Sam and I went to a stake president once. Well, we had multiple talks with the stake president as we were going through our faith journey and trying to get answers to our questions. And he basically told us that there was like pretty much no doctrine. There is no doctrine. The only there's doctrine no there thing. is, is there's no such thing that God is God <laughs> and Jesus Christ is our savior. And basically mm -hmm. everything outside of that is church policy. How convenient, right? And because policies can change. Because policies can change and doctrine can't. Mm. And we left and I remember us looking at each other and praying about it and just being like, that's just not, that's not fundamentally true to what we believe. We were taught that there is fundamental mm. doctrine that shouldn't be changed. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, well, this is one of the things I like to say is that it, it's a matter of like, basic reality. Uh, when you're a child, you learn object permanence, you know, uh, just because you can't see it right now, it's behind the curtain, it's still real. You know, this kind of these basic, basic ideas. Isn't that the way that we have to approach truth? I mean, or even the scientific method, okay, is that you have to have repeatable results. You can't say, oh, well, you know, when I published my scientific paper, 
the laws of physics worked one way, but now that you've tried to replicate my experiment and your experiment didn't go the way mine did, it's just because the laws of physics and fundamental reality itself changed. See, I was right and you're right. It's like, no, like if, if that's the way you think, how can you ever trust anything, rely on anything? And this is especially important to me in the religious context because the same way that we have to have the basic trust in reality, well, that's also necessary for any kind of faith in God, because if any God, any deity is so changeable that uh, gravity works today and doesn't work tomorrow, then you can't have confidence in that deity to actually save you. I mean, even if he already did, let's say we all go to heaven and it turns out that we're all sitting in on our clouds with our harps and singing praises to Jesus. And all of a sudden theology changes and Jesus isn't God anymore. And righteousness is wickedness and wickedness is righteousness. And the devil's the real God and who knows what. It doesn't matter if you've been saved in that, saved in that heaven for a million years. If God is that changeable, you can't have any confidence that tomorrow the sun's gonna rise or that anything matters. And so that there's just no faith there. Yeah, that was one of the things I said to the stake president. I said, I particularly was talking about temple covenants and we'll get into temple stuff later, not trying to- I'd like to. Too much. Yeah, I would love to as well. But I was telling the stake president, I said, listen, if the covenants that I'm making in the temple right now are just for this time, but the women who did the covenants 50 years ago made different covenants, why am I to believe that it's not going to be different 50 years from now? And then who's actually making the correct covenants if there's supposed to be only one set of covenants that return me back to God? And if they're going to change, then why does it matter what I'm doing right now? And that was another really hard one for me, this idea that, like you said, in a restorative, and I feel like in a gospel that is supposed to be a restoration, it would be different if we didn't claim restoration. But when you claim restoration, if you're believing that God's restoring everything to the one truth that it's supposed to be, then you are automatically putting a claim that it's not going to change. Yeah. And so in a restorative church, mm -hmm. and there's they're making their covenants here and it's separate from me here, and it's probably gonna be separate from my great grandchildren there, then how can I trust any of them? Well, and that's just during our time when the whole point of the restoration, right, is that these same covenants were made by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These same covenants were made by Adam and Enoch and Moses throughout all of eternity. It's the same covenants. And now we can't even keep it up for more than a decade or so at a time without changing them. Um, yeah. And actually, this is really the story. That is the story. That is why I left um, the mainstream LDS church. I was a temple oh. worker, an ordinance worker. In the Taipei Taiwan Temple, when they took out what are usually just called the initiatories, the washing and anointing and clothing ordinances, yeah. They yeah. that's when they took that out. It was in the early 2000s, and they said, you know what? It makes people really uncomfortable, and I understand that it does, um, because originally you basically you do get naked. You put on like a poncho type thing, but then you're, you're literally washed and anointed with oil and water and things like that. Um, but then they, they took that out in the early 2000s, and they, and they said, you will be blessed only symbolically as follows. And then they would mm -hmm. recite mm -hmm. a blessing, place their hands on your head, and say, now you're washed and anointed, even though they didn't literally do it. Well, this, this drove me crazy as a temple worker at the time, because I was like, wait a second. If I had done this ordinance last week, would that have been okay? And they're like, no, we would have excommunicated you for doing this last week. And I'm like, and mm -hmm. if I do what we did last week, this week, 
is that okay? And they're like, no, we'll excommunicate you if you, if you do last week's version this week. And I'm like, but this isn't, this isn't small. This is literally a difference. It's not just a symbolic difference. It's like a literal thing about baptism. I remember growing up in the LDS church, I was told that one of the reasons why we needed a restoration was because the Catholics, Catholic baptism was no longer valid. Why was Catholic baptism no longer valid? Because they sprinkled infants. They're doing it in the wrong manner, the wrong place, the wrong people, that kind of thing. And that change to the ordinance meant that it was not, was not valid. That is yeah. why we needed Joseph Smith. That's why we need a restoration. And I'm like, this isn't even just, it, this is more than just an analogous. This is exactly the same thing. You're taking a literal ordinance that has to be performed in a certain way and then saying, well, it's only symbolic. We, you can be symbolically immersed by sprinkling, right? No. No. You can be symbolically washed without being washed. You can be symbolically anointed without being anointed. And I was like, no, I, I don't think that that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know if it was at the same time that it was being changed to symbolic that women were allowed to be doing the washing and anointings to the other women? Actually, you know the time? quite the opposite. This is a fascinating thing. But women and priesthood issues with where women are performing sacred ordinances is actually yeah. far more common in the early, in early Mormonism. Oh. Women are no washing and anointing women. Uh, goes back to the very beginning. In fact, there's e other things like the confinement blessing where women um, prepare an, a woman for childbirth. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff. It was really actually only in the 1930s. Uh, the Relief Society was incorporated into the mainstream church because they were kind of, they had right. a separate organization uh, yeah. with their own money, their own, all kinds of things outside the the church structure, essentially. And they got Until incorporated. The and a bunch of that stuff got tamped down on. So no, actually, that's not new. That's 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 the very oldest. Women anointing the women goes back throughout antiquity, even. Okay, that's so interesting because when mm -hmm. I went through the temple, I received my endowments and did my washing and anointing. Um, no one told me that there was going to be women performing ordinances on me, and mm -hmm. it was shocking and very uncomfortable. You would think that I would feel yeah, more yeah. comfortable with a woman, but in my life, I felt like being raised in the church, I had constantly defended because at the same time, there's like, mm -hmm. when I was going through the temple, there were all these women who wanted the priesthood and they were fighting the church for priesthood. And I was one of those women who was defending why men have the priesthood and my other, you know, divine nature and things that, that I didn't need the priesthood. I was one of those mm -hmm. women that was defending the church in this, that women didn't need the priesthood. Right. When I walked in to the temple and was unaware that there was going to be women performing priesthood ordinances on me, I felt so uncomfortable. I was well, like, oh my gosh, everything I've been defending. In fact, they changed the title to matron and matron's assistance because mm -hmm. the original title up until about a, about a century ago, up until about a century ago, um, the matron was called the high priestess of the temple and the priestesses were the matron's oh, wow. assistants. And so kind it's of cool. kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, but, but then there was this big, in trying to get rid of polygamy, they had to get rid of women's priesthood. And, and it's hard to see why is that connected, but the reason why that's so deeply connected is that women, when they were empowered, um, to make their own decisions, sometimes wanted to marry polygamously. And how do you tell them no if they're like, no, this is my right. This is, there's something called the law of Sarah. 
um, in Doctrine and Covenants section 132. And that was interpreted throughout like the Mormon underground period during a lot of this polygamy in the early 1900s and late 1800s. Uh, was interpreted by a lot of women to say that women have a priesthood role in deciding plural marriages, in making them happen. Uh, and of course, most Mormon fundamentalist groups have downplayed this too. Like the FLES certainly doesn't do this. But but there was this about 100 years ago and a little bit more. There was this idea that women's priesthood was totally linked and women's authority was totally linked to them choosing plural marriage. And so in order hmm. to get rid of that, they, they the Relief Society was this looked at to a certain extent as this rogue organization promoting plural marriage promoting women's priesthood outside the auspices and the control of the male dominated church hierarchy at the time and don't forget it wasn't just them that was being clamped down on heber j grant who was president of the church at the time in the 1920s and 30s was really trying to consolidate his own power out from all of these different Mormon fundamentalist groups and different people going different ways. He wanted to create a power core that he could control and clamp down on this polygamy and unauthorized ordinance work and things like that. And so one of the casualties of that was women's roles in the, making these decisions, women's roles in administering the church in many ways was, was taken away uh, in order to consolidate that power. And so um yeah it's just linked that's interesting because if you look at it from the other perspective the church that was originally known as the rlds mm -hmm. they they did away with polygamy but they continued on with the women's rights with the women's priesthood so they almost did the opposite right. there right and and also right. like you mentioned you mentioned the they FLDS. weren't threatened by it yeah right with the flds you know the, the women holding the priesthood was so far from a possibility because it was mm -hmm. very much a, a patriarchy, and but they continued to live the polygamy. So it looks like it, mm -hmm. it can go either way. Because you, you mentioned yeah. the church, you mentioned the church started doing that to put an end to polygamy. But it seems like it went different directions depending on which group you're referring to. It's true, but I think that that was one of their motivations anyway. Uh, the other thing too that's kind of odd about it with the mainstream LDS church is that they still have a bunch of really strange policies around women that no other group has that I'm aware of. Like the mainstream Elias church doesn't allow women to be clerks or accountants. Uh, even when they do a third party audit and they hire non LDS members to audit LDS books, mm. there is a church policy and rule that says no female accountant is allowed to touch those numbers. You can only hire yes. male accountants, even though that isn't even just not about priesthood. That's not even about membership. They're not even Mormons. And that's they saw no this way. rule where women aren't allowed to see the numbers. And I'm like, why not? Like, that's, it just seems to me absurdly sexist. Yeah. So when you were, when you were a temple ordinance worker at that point, the washing and anointings, were the women still doing it? And then men were washing and anointing men. So it, did it always yeah. stay separate that way? So that wasn't a new trying to give into the women wanting access to the priesthood no. at that time. Okay. No, so it, it was that way in Nauvoo. It was that way oh. at the very beginning. Uh, women anoint, washing and anointing the women and men washing and anointing the men. Okay. So the washing mm -hmm. and anointings change and you're like, what the heck's going on? This doesn't make yeah. sense. What were your next steps that you took? Well, the funny thing is, is that, yeah, it was like, this doesn't make sense, but what alternative do I have? This is the... Um, he said, one, of a, one of the uh, general authorities said it not too long ago in an LDS conference, like, but where else will you go? Mm -hmm, and I remember yeah. having that despair, like, what else am I going to do? Like, I'm only upset about this because I believe in it. 
I'm only upset about losing an ordinance because I want the ordinance. I cherish this as a sacred, beautiful expression of the divine and 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 promises to us. But where else am I going to go? Uh, Mormon fundamentalism? Uh, they've Most of them don't have temples. If they do have temples, who knows what they're even using them for? I'd been to the Community of Christ temple in Independence already as a, as a kid. Um, they don't do endowments. They don't do initiatories. Uh, so I was like, well, I can't go to them. I'm, I'm upset about the fact that I cannot have this beautiful blessing of the washings and anointings. Who else has them? And I was looking around thinking, I don't think anybody else has anything more. So maybe I'm better off with a watered down milk than no milk at all. It's mm -hmm. kind of the attitude. And and that's the and but it was a very uncomfortable truce that I had with myself because I was constantly being reminded that the brethren cannot be wrong and should never be contradicted. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet I still felt like not only does this not make sense, I'm grateful that I was able to receive my ordinances before they started doing this. Should I feel guilty for feeling grateful? You know, and so if there's if there, if nothing is wrong with the church and nothing is wrong with the general authorities or even can be, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with my testimony? Uh, so it was an uncomfortable truce, and it was that way for a few years. I I did because I am a scholarly type, right? I've I did do some reading, and the more I read about the early church, the more I found out. Oh man, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So many ordinance changes, so many. Down the rabbit uh, hole you went, huh? <laughs> and, and down the rabbit hole I went, and I was already pretty far down the rabbit hole before this particular thing really upset me. But it was like, um, yeah, but what do I do about it? I mean, I can't, uh, I can't live that kind of religion. There's nobody who seems to believe that. I, so I contacted, a, but I did contact a bunch of different churches. There's the Church of Jesus Christ. They're another one of the Eastern churches um, that's just called the Church of Jesus Christ. So I talked to Rigdonites and Bickertonites and Fettingites. I talked to <laughs> the RLDS, now Community of Christ, and the remnant okay. branches that broke off of them when women were ordained to the priesthood, for example. Um, yeah. And I've been to all their services. And I, I talked to independent Mormon fundamentalists. At one point, I did think uh, maybe I should try to talk to the FLDS. Um, that, of course, didn't go anywhere. They <laughs> 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 did, did, did you try? Did you try to reach out to the FLDS? I did a little bit, but um, it was one of those things where it was like I didn't even know how to start because any independent I talked to, even the and the people in uh, Centennial Park, I went to church services there a few times, talked okay. to people in Centennial Park. All I was like, well, yeah, but shouldn't I try to talk to someone who's FLDS? And they're like, they won't talk to you. <laughs> and I was like, do you have any phone numbers? And they're like, no, I'm not giving you a phone number of somebody. They're just gonna be mad that you're harassing them, you know. And and at one point, I got my tire fixed. Uh, in uh, Colorado City, and I, I, and the guy there was FLDS, and I was like, "Are you FLDS?" He's like, "Yes, I am. I am fully in." And I was like, "Can you tell me anything?" He says, "No." And I was like, <laughs> "Wow, anything at all? Like, uh, is there any way that I could learn about it or visit a, visit somebody or anyone I could talk to? Even if you don't want to talk to me, I get that. That's fine. Could you tell me someone I can talk to?" And he just looks at me like exasperated that I continued to ask, and he's like, "No." That was it. Like, so it was, it was like brick wall, you know, with FLDS, I'm afraid. Now I have talked to more ex FLDS people over the years. I, I met some people, um, 
uh, from the Kingstons, actually, who were okay. arguing on behalf of FLDS members against the uh, new uh, management of the trust uh, mm. that took over the UEP and stuff like that. Just And so it was interesting to talk to some of them. But uh, again, no, no. There was no promise there religiously, right? What was I looking for? I was looking for temples where the fullness of the original ordinances are performed. The FLDS clearly didn't have that. They built that temple in Texas, but not only is that a total wreck and ruin now, it became pretty clear pretty fast that whatever they were doing in there was not what I was looking for anyway. And right. it was not yeah. the original ordinances. It was some right. kind of new convoluted thing that, that Warren Jeffs was making up as he went along yeah. probably. And, uh, and of course, a lot of that was ugly uh, stuff. So, uh, and then I talked to some uh, 70s in the AUB. I attended some of their services. And that seemed the most promising to me. But here was the big problem. The whole point of the fullness of the gospel in my mind was, I, I, I need to be able to have a fullness of truth. Uh, if anybody's like, no, 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 this or that's forbidden. No, 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 we don't talk about that. No, 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 we don't do this. No, 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 we don't do that. That's like the instant red flag for me at the time, because I was thinking, no, the whole point is I need to be free to explore fully my faith, explore fully the world, embrace all truth, let it come from whence it may, as Joseph Smith said. I don't want anybody setting up stakes around God saying, thus far thou hast come, thou shalt go no further. Because the moment they do that, they're, they're, they're either not being transparent enough, they're hiding something, which... Often enough, let's face it, both in the mainstream LDS and in the modern fundamentalist groups, often means they're hiding some kind of corruption or abuse. I mean, I, I see that as a huge red flag. Um, and two, I just can't live my life inside that box. Either I'm going to stay inside the mainstream LDS church box and be like, follow the prophet. I'm not going to go outside the box. Or if I'm going to go outside the box, I'm going to seek all truth. Let it come from whence it may. And just yeah. live my life. To complicate matters a little bit, I'd done a bit of that already. Um, when I was in the mainstream LDS, I found that I was kind of running up against this brick wall of like, no, 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 we don't talk about mysterious things. And wanting to expand my spiritual understanding, so I studied Buddhism. And a bunch of Eastern religions and, and Taoism, I did a translation of the Tao Te Ching into English and cross-referenced the Tao Te Ching, which is the Taoist scripture, basically, right? Um, and parts of the Zhuangzi, which is another Taoist scripture, with the four standard works and made it like a cross-reference system and all kinds of things like oh, that. Wow. I was exploring wow. new ideas, but I wasn't doing it really in the church, right? And I just, I wasn't going to go back inside a box. Yeah. Sorry, can I ask you? Well, I kind of have two questions. One, mm -hmm. what would you say was your biggest takeaway or the biggest positive thing that you took away from studying all those Eastern cultures and religions? Wow. It's hard to narrow down to one big takeaway. How about um, non-duality? We have this idea, especially in the West, um, and it permeates even our understanding of Eastern religions, that there is a spiritual world and a physical world, and these two things are very separate. They're very different. There's the spirit and there's the body, and they're not the same thing. They're not connected. Uh, and then there's good things and bad things, and they're not connected. And there's the divine nature, and then there's the fallen, sinful nature of man. And those are two very different things. That's the way almost all Western religion approaches yeah. every question, is through this dualistic lens. And in Eastern religion, that's generally viewed as immature thinking. It's Dualism is viewed as... Uh, 
a, a, an illusion of the mind to try to categorize things in ways that are useful but not accurate. Like, um, like a theory that we know is false, but it's still useful, so we go along with it anyway, almost like a superstition. Well, okay. in Eastern religions, one of the main focuses is that you need to understand that duality is a wholeness. It's not good and evil. It's not the yin being totally separate from the yang, right? The yin-yang, people yeah. say usually in English. Yeah. The, it's that there's an interconnection and an interplay and that they're both necessary. And to me, this is super, super Mormon mm. and not very Western at all. And so I would say the biggest takeaway I could share is probably, I don't think Mormonism is a dualistic religion. A lot of Mormon converts came from dualistic worldviews. And so a ton of that continues to infect our thinking. But the more I look at what Joseph Smith actually taught or what is actually in our LDS scriptures, there's tons of places where non-dualistic thinking is encouraged. And dualistic thinking is denied or contradicted. Interesting. It still persists in the culture, but I was like, no, I think that, I think that Mormonism is a non-dualist religion. Can you give us a one example, like within scriptures or like you're saying, where there's that, where you can see that non-dualism? Yeah. So there's, uh, there's a place uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord says, never have I given you a temporal commandment for, to me, all things are spiritual. And I thought that was really interesting, um, especially with other breakoff groups that I've associated with, like Denver Snuffer and the Doctrine of Christ and some of these guys. Um, okay. They're like more of a modern fundamentalist, uh, non-polygamist usually, but you know they've got their own things going on. They did an addition of the Doctrine of Covenants where they changed everything to be time-based. And I thought, actually, this is so much more like the mainstream church. This is true for these people. This is true for these people. It can be separate things. Right. Yeah. Right. And they embraced that in Denver Snuffer's movement, it seems like. But then I looked at this scripture in the Doctrine of Covenants. I'm like, no, never before I've given you a temporal commandment. What does temporal mean? Time-related, time-bound. That's what temporal means. He's like, because all things are spiritual, mm. right? So if the Lord tells you to gather and live the United Order, um, and this is the context in the Doctrine of Covenants, it's about the, about the United Order. We have this idea that like, oh, well, that's a temporal commandment. It's different than a spiritual commandment. So uh, like you were saying earlier, doctrine is about whether or not Jesus loves us and Jesus and Heavenly Father are real. Everything else is a policy it can change. Mm -hmm. Basically, what I think this scripture in the Doctrine of Covenants is saying is, never before have I given you a policy. I have only ever given you eternal laws that will never change. Huh, that's an interesting way to look at that, yeah. And, 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 and I think also what he's doing, what the Lord is doing in that, in, that, um, in that passage is he's trying to explain, there's no difference between the spiritual and the temporal. Um, it also says in the Doctrine and Covenants, um, God is spirit, right? And he says, of course I'm spirit. You're spirit also, right? And so mm -hmm. we don't, but we think in our dualistic way of thinking, I don't walk around saying, I'm a spirit. People are going to be like, no, you're you're physical, you're real. And I'm like, <laughs> what makes you think a spirit isn't real? Like, I am a spirit. You're a spirit. Because all of these things are real. They're all in the same world. There's another um, passage a lot of people forget about. I want to say Doctrine and Covenants section 93, but it's in that area. Might not be 93. It talks about how um, it's all matter. That whether it's, whether it's gross matter or spiritual matter, when we see with pure eyes, we will see that it is all matter. In other words, Everything that exists is real. There is no immaterial matter. There is no separate spirit world that's separate from our world. This is the spirit world. 
and the physical world. Sometimes yeah. we just don't have the eyes to see or comprehend, but there's no dualism is what I feel mm -hmm. like he's saying over and over again. Don't, you can't imagine that you and other people are so fundamentally separate that, and that, that individuality is so American that we have a hard time even comprehending anything without it. And most of the time that's just ego. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and so in Christchurch, for example, this is, was one of the things that blew my mind. We haven't quite got that far in the story was <laughs> that these are teachings in Christchurch is lots of Eastern philosophy. So before you found what you believe to be the truth and currently believe today, before you got to that point, because we have people from all different walks and backgrounds and religious beliefs that watch this. And a lot of them would say any of the Mormon policies or doctrines are kind of far-fetched and crazy, right? So in all of your searching and all of your researching different religions outside of Mormonism, within Mormonism, was there ever a point that you thought, you know, maybe this is all just crazy? Maybe there is no true religion out there. Maybe it's just uh, people making stuff up at this point. Did you ever get to that point or did you never, did you never even think of that possibility? Oh, I got there. Uh, in fact, I was lamenting this the other day. Um, why is it, I was saying, that when I do my missionary work, I can't help somebody coming from a mainstream LDS background or an FLDS background or um, any of these other groups, why can't they just transition from being a believing Mormon of one sect and then join another one? It doesn't seem to happen at all without them first going through a massive faith crisis where they have to question, is there even a God? Is there anything spiritual at all? Is it all just BS? Is it all just made up? And they have to go through a really dark night of the soul to get there. And I did too. Um, and I don't know, but I think that that is a necessary part of what a faith journey is, what it, what it means. Uh, but yeah, I absolutely did. I, there was a certain point where it was like, does any of it even matter? Does any of it even exist? But I've had my spiritual experiences that were profound to me. Uh, and it's like, look, I can... I can question everything, including those experiences, but I've never felt like there is no such thing as a spiritual world. I was never been a, I, I, I could never fully embrace secularism because even though I was like, all of this stuff seems painful, but it's painful because it's still real to me. And so even when I had a crisis, I didn't really, I didn't go that way though in saying, you know what, I'm going to become a secularist because I had too much spiritual experience and too much spiritual um, appreciation for for that to to just assume that I could give it up entirely. But I definitely thought about it. I, I, see. I think Sam's definitely one of those rare cases where he did go yeah. from the FLDS into the LDS, the mainstream LDS. Very quickly, in, in fact. Yeah, like within a year mm -hmm. where he was able to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and honestly, it was for me. It was a soft landing. It was coming from a mm -hmm. high demand, very strict religion, very secretive religion, mm -hmm. into what seemed like ultimate freedom compared to where I came from. Mm -hmm. the The mainstream LDS church was just like, "Oh, hey, we get we can do whatever we want out here. <laughs> you know, I can date, I can do these things that uh, I wasn't allowed to do." And so it seemed yep. like it was a soft landing. It gave me some kind of purpose and direction, uh, a next step for me. That being said, most everyone else I know that has left the FLDS generally don't join another religion. They generally say, yeah. wow, if that's not true, nothing can be true because I fully believed and now I know it's not the truth. They, it just kind of takes them 
not always down a dark path, but away from religious beliefs generally. I kind of have a theory on that a little bit too, because I've seen other people and had other friends of other faiths and other Christian religions. And, you know, they might not go to the same Christian church they did when they were being raised. Like they may have been raised Catholic and they go to a non-denominational. I think there's something about the fact that when you're taught that there's only one truth, your entire mm -hmm. life, like the the idea of there's only one truth and this is the truth. There's only one truth. This is, and you have that in your mind, your entire upbringing in life. And then you think, okay, this isn't the one truth. Well, if this isn't the one truth, then like nothing can be true. You know, it's easy to jump to that conclusion rather than when you mm -hmm. are raised in other religions where they don't claim to be the only truth. They think that the, the, the truth is a basis in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. So then you basically have these thousands of churches to choose from. And so I think it's kind of cool right. that you said, okay, I'm going to go and look at all these other churches on their basis of truth rather than just throwing out the baby with the bathwater and saying, just because the one that I was raised in, I no longer believe is on the right path, doesn't mean that there isn't one with the right path. Yeah, and I guess for me, it just seemed like it's different pieces of the puzzle. It's different pieces of the pie. Uh, the LDS upbringing that I had was generally positive, but it felt like they're only offering one piece. Mm -hmm. And here's another piece, and here's another piece. And I was... Uh, maybe you could call this holy envy or, or maybe it's greed or something, <laughs> but I wanted the whole picture. I wanted the whole puzzle. I wanted to be able to say, I'm going to embrace all of reality, all of truth and see how it all works together. And yeah, it's, uh, there are some things that are like a false piece. It's like, no, this piece doesn't even go to this puzzle, but <laughs> yeah. the vast majority of truth, I think works together. And, so, and so that's, that's, that's the why for me, um, when I, when I said to myself, okay, the mainstream of this church doesn't have the truth. It was more about me saying they don't have, they, they have one interpretation, but that does not foreclose all of the other possibilities for me. And so I need to find out where that, that perspective, that insight plays into the larger truth. So, sorry, just really quick here. So you mentioned you wanted the full picture, the full, the full, the full pie. Mm -hmm. And that obviously everyone would want that, right? That that makes a lot of sense to me. But you're going to have people that hear that and say, well, the whole picture, the whole pie is Jesus Christ in the Bible. You're adding on all this additional stuff that's unnecessary and untrue. <laughs> what would you say to that? Right. I, I've, I've had this conversation with several Christians. Um, I would say that that's a myopic way of thinking. They're just trying to be dismissive of other things. Uh, and, and honestly, mainstream LDS do this a lot too, where they'll be like, do we have to live polygamy? Or, oh no, are there more revelations? Are there more scriptures? I don't want more scriptures. I don't read the ones we've already got. Well, that's not my <laughs> perspective at all. And, I, and, and if that's where people are at, you know what? Let them take their time. But it's not, do I have to? It's, but I want to. Who's going to stop me? You know, um, uh, Here's another insight I got. I was at I was at shul. I um I was at Jewish um, services, right? Jewish Torah services are called shul, and there, a tons of the the Jewish prayers in Hebrew, um, talk about Asher de Kiddushanu b'Mitzvotov. So the uh, the idea that the Lord sanctifies us by His commandments, that the commandments aren't this like obstacle to our happiness, like oh no, now there's more commandments. It's like Thank you, God, for helping us to become sanctified uh, by giving us the joy of commandments, that they're this wonderful gift that, that, uh, that the Jewish people are like, 
we were at Sinai and we were able to receive your law. We were able to receive the commandments. All the other nations didn't get to receive this supreme gift, but we were able to get it, this wonderful gift. And I remember thinking, man, that's not the way that people talked about commandments in the LDS usually. It was like, oh, no, more commandments, you know, <laughs> more stuff we have to do, more boxes we have to check, more Add trouble. Add it to the checklist. Yep. Yeah. And, and I was like, but that's not my attitude. My attitude is so much more like the, the Jewish one. We get to. Isn't that wonderful? And so, like, when I went to the AUB, for example, they were, they were, a, they were a nice group of polygamous Mormons, right? But... Um, they were like, oh, yeah, we're here for polygamy. That's what we're here for. Mm. But things like missionary work, we don't do that. Hmm. Right? And I was like, what? How could you possibly, if you have something of value, how could you possibly keep it to yourself? Why on earth would you not have missionaries? And I don't hmm. want to trade missionary work for polygamy. Okay, first of all, <laughs> polygamy wasn't really my main motivation here. It was temple ordinances. But missionary work is so important to me. I'd say it's definitely more important than polygamy in Mormonism. Missionary work is the basis of Mormonism, way more fundamental, really, to me and to most of Mormonism than polygamy is. Polygamy is an incidental, but it's not like the central message. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to work for me. you know. And they're like, well, if you want to do missionary work, stay in the mainstream LDS church. Hmm. And I was like, well, then I guess I will, you know? Man, so how long did this period of time go where you're searching and you're going to these other churches and you're speaking with people? How long was that period of time? And what kind of ended that chapter of searching and and you finding Christchurch? So I guess it was about eight years. Oh, wow. And Christchurch is a small one. You guys weren't aware of it when you saw the Peter Sant. Yeah, I've yep, never yeah. heard of it. Um, and it, it, but everything changed for me. Basically, I, I like I said, I knew a bunch of Mormon um, historians. I knew a bunch of different uh, fundamentalist groups, different other non-fundamentalist groups, I guess, different Mormon groups. And I'd started breaking it down to a basic litmus test. One of the main things that was important to me in the first place was the Washington anointings in the temple. And so I would ask every group, do you have a temple? And what do you use it for? And they kept saying, well, no, we don't, but maybe God will re-restore these things. Or, well, we do, but we don't believe that endowments are important. We do this other thing or something like that, right? Uh, that was, and so that was kind of like my litmus test. And I got a call um, from somebody at one point who goes, hey, you got to find out about these people called the branch. Um, I only later found out it was called Christchurch. And I said, why? He said, you know how you're always grilling everybody? Do you have a temple? What do you do with it? Uh, they've got a temple. And I was like, well, why the heck not? I'll ask them, you know, sure. I was, I didn't have my hopes very high, frankly, because I figured they'd say the same thing that everybody else had said. It's either, no, we don't really have one or, well, we only use it for songs and prayers and it's like a chapel or something like that. So I called his friend who knew the phone number of somebody. So it was a friend of a friend of a friend, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and yeah. And called him up and I said, so I understand you're from this church called The Branch and that you have a temple that's shaped like a pyramid. Um, and you guys had that uh, that uh, picture you pulled up. Yeah, we uh, found it. Yeah, yeah, we found it. <laughs> um, so there's a pyramid-shaped temple. And I was like, now that's interesting. A pyramid. That's uh, uh, I'm into like sacred geometry, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's there's a bunch of symbolism that goes into that. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I gotta, I'll talk to these people. 
And I was, I was frankly shocked. I couldn't believe it. I, I called him up and I was like, so do you have a temple? Yes, we do. And actually there's more than one uh, temple. There's a temple in Nevada and a temple in Southern Utah. Hmm. Um, only one of them is a pyramid, though Southern Utah one. And I asked, okay, so you do have a temple. What do you use it for? And he said, well, for all the ordinances. And I was like, well, explain. How, <laughs> what, what, what ordinances do you consider important? And which ones of them do you perform? And how do you perform them? Because by this time, of course, I had read every book you can imagine on the history of temple ordinances and who was doing what and what was done when. And he's like, well, the fullness of them, all of them, and all in their original form. And I was like, well, in that case, I definitely have a lot more specific questions. The more I asked, the more I was surprised and satisfied with the answers that I was getting, um, both just literal answers as well as the spiritual side of it. It was like, yeah, no, this is kind of exactly what I was saying I wanted. So should I turn my nose up at it now that I'm seeing that it's there? Were they willing to give you answers to like the questions about the ordinances within the temple? Do they, oh, yeah. Did they seem more secretive or were they very open? They're very open with me about all kinds of things. Oh, wow. Okay. And I, That's really And cool. I try to be open about these things too, in case you have questions. Um, but yeah, it's like they do missionary work. They've got temples. They're doing the ordinances in them. Uh, I'll tell you some of the questions I asked that maybe some viewers yeah. may or may not even be aware of. Things like the endowments. How much time do they take? A lot of times people will mm -hmm. talk about how pared down it is because it's gotten so small. Uh and is it live endowment? In other words, it, do you participate? And the answer to that is yes. All of that's yes. You don't watch other people do the endowment. You do the endowment as wow. a participatory act. This is really important to me. Um, essentially, if you go through as a man, you play the role of Michael Adam. If you're a woman, you become Eve. And you actually experience what it's like to go through the stages and you actually participate in doing everything. I did hear that's the way it originally was in the mainstream, mm -hmm. or I guess the original <laughs> church. Yeah. Is it for baptisms for the dead that you would go back yeah, after your original or ordinances for the dead and things like that? So yeah, there's baptisms for the living and the dead in the temple. We do do our living baptisms in the temple too. Um, but uh, yeah, we do ba uh, the baptisms for the dead, the endowments, the ceilings. Um, but there's other things too that have generally been forgotten. The, the first endowment is only, the endowment is actually just the first endowment. There's a second endowment, or sometimes called the second anointing. There's the washing and anointing and clothing ordinances where you have to receive the original full garment uh, that has additional symbols on it and things like that, that uh, the mainstream have taken out. And then there's additional things like the law of adoption. I have to ask that. Okay, sorry. I just got so excited when you were talking about original garments because that was a yeah. big shelf item for me that I did a deep dive on. And it was so hard to find information on it to begin with. Yeah. And then I went and I was searching and finding and finding. And then I ended up asking my brother was going to BYU at the time. And I said, the church website doesn't have it. This is the information I was like gathering and mm -hmm. this is how I think it went and what the original garments were, what they symbolized everything. Can you ask your BYU mm -hmm. professor if this is right, about if I'm this. on the right path? Yeah, about yeah. this one thing. And he went to his professor and his professor was like, yeah, she got it like pretty much right, which is hard. It's hard to find yeah. all right. the information, I feel like. So your church has the original garments. Yep. Yep. We still do. Oh. And, and there's a bunch of symbols wow. in there that are... 
are forgotten, even somewhat by Mormon fundamentalists at times. So um, people usually focus on the idea that they're long, you know, like uh, yeah. it comes down to your down to your wrist yeah. or your ankle. That's what people seem to focus on, but that's not the main symbolic difference. No. The main symbolic differences are things like there are ties that tie them together. And so these ties wow. are like representations of covenants, right? The same way that we're tied to God. Um, but it also, like the ancient temple, we talk about being a restoration uh, group. People forget about this, but these garments, if we believe in a restoration, weren't, they weren't invented by Joseph Smith. They mm -hmm. relate They're to revealed. ancient temple garments, right? And so the ancient, um, in the temple of Zerubbabel and the temple of Solomon, we're talking, you know, 600 BC here and, and, so, and so forth, the garments that they were wearing were similar, very similar to what the original garment is. So the whole thing, for example, is cut in half. The, the garment is basically, like, you can imagine it like a robe made out of two pieces, a right hand and a left hand side. Well, there's so much symbolism in that, but that's something that the mainstream church took away. Now they just basically wear a shirt and, and shorts, but the whole point of it being cut in half. Yeah. So all of the, all of the ancient temple sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, for example, and, and all of these things are symbolized in the garment. There's the, the different offerings are symbolized in the garment. Um, the, and, and there's a collar and the collar lays around the neck. Well, so in other words, what is it? It's like the straps of a backpack is the way we think of it now, but it's the yoke. So the yoke um, is a reminder that, as Jesus said, our, uh, he said, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so the yoke uh, is this beautiful reminder to us, uh, even though it's just basically like it looks like a collar to most people. It's this beautiful reminder to us of the, the burden of our covenants are not a heavy thing. They're meant to be a, a promise of, of future glory and, and hope and that Christ is always with us, that we can bear up the burden of this world um, and, and go into a better one. And so there's all these symbols that I think that they're beautiful and important things, uh, and yet people discarded all of that, I think, simply because they didn't like the fact it was long-sleeved. You know, they well, wanted to... It's like, roll up your sleeves and keep your covenants. I don't know why that was such a big deal, but you know, it was to a lot of people. Yeah. And in wow. my research, and it was one of the like deal breakers for me feeling comfortable in my own garments at that time, as I was researching this, one of the biggest thing, you know, I'm learning about the symbolism and I did, I was able to find everything you're describing so far were the things that I had been learning and, and had found. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing to me though, that was just kind of like shattered it for me, the garments that I was mm -hmm. currently wearing was the fact that it was very clearly stated by Joseph Smith himself that if there were any changes made to this original garment, it would be blasphemy. And those words yeah. just stuck in my heart. Like, okay, this is very clear. This is how it was originally revealed. I mean, the only thing that I couldn't get a straight answer on is whether or not it was revealed by Christ himself or an angel. But, you know, Mm -hmm. By divine glory, Joseph Smith saw exactly what it was supposed to be. He recreated that. And he himself said, if it's changed, it's blasphemy. And I literally looked at my garments and thought, I'm just wearing blasphemy. If I believe that Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God and that it was revealed by divinity, what I'm wearing is blasphemy. And I couldn't wear my garments the same way ever again. This is a, this is a harsh um, thing for people to hear, but I feel it so much. Uh, when I drive to work now, I pass a couple of uh, three um, LDS temples. Uh, I live here in Utah County, so there's temples everywhere. And I look at the side of that temple, and it says, 
holiness to the Lord, the house of the Lord. And my first spiritual reaction, even now, is to be like, praise the Lord. I love the temple. It's so beautiful to be reminded of these sacred things. But then it's followed up by a certain sense of dread that I currently have. Because it's like, yeah, but they're not doing the Lord's ordinances in those temples. They're changing everything. And it's been explicitly told to us multiple times by numerous prophets throughout this dispensation that what they're doing is a solemn mockery before God. Hmm. And it's like, oh my gosh, I should be careful. I'm going to get struck by lightning just driving past this thing, you know, or something, you know, <laughs> it's almost the feeling of dread that comes on me. And it's, it's sad because I, 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 sometimes I do speak negatively, of course, of the LDS church, because I feel like they're, they're doing a lot of things that I think are, are wrong. Um, and sometimes you got to call people out when they're doing something that's wrong. But I usually have very friendly, warm feelings. Uh, people are doing the best they can, you know? Mm-hmm. But the difference is, is I'm not sure everyone's doing the best they can. Uh, the same way that Warren Jeffs, I believe, is the greatest enemy of the FLDS people. He absolutely destroyed the entire community. He's to blame for that. And I feel the same way, unfortunately, about Russell M. Nelson. He's the greatest enemy that the Mormon church has on the earth right now. And people will say, what are you talking about? He's the president of the church. He's the prophet of God. He's great. And I'm like, picture this. If he was an enemy and the devil himself was inspiring him what to do. Now, he can't go too fast. He can't just stand up and be like, there is no God. Burn it all down. People wouldn't follow him. They'd just find some other leader. But if you wanted to destroy what it meant to be a Mormon, you wanted to destroy our history, our culture, our ordinances, our practices, our vernacular, everything that makes us distinct, everything that makes us different, everything that gives us a sense of community, how would you do it? And it's like, oh my gosh, as far as I can see from where I'm sitting, Russell M. Nelson is doing the playbook of I'm going to destroy Mormonism to a T. Turning to mainstream Christianity. Yeah, he's turning it into mainstream Christianity. I mean, there's all kinds of small examples, none of which particularly matter on their own, but taken as a whole, just looks so vicious to me. Uh, But here's here's another random little tidbit. This was only like a month ago or something. It wasn't very long ago. The church legal department convinced Google Maps to change the little pins that show you where an LDS church meeting (laughs) house is. We saw that. We saw that. From Moroni with the trumpet to a little cross. And I'm like... I know it seems so little to the outside world. Yeah, no, I'm like, there's going to be viewers who are watching that are, have never been raised in any kind of Mormonism and they're going to go, what is the big deal? Yep. But I right. was telling my LDS mother this because I'm like, it's hard to describe the amount of people could be like, well, that was never doctrine that you couldn't use a cross. And I'm like, and people will try to play it off as it's a cultural thing that we don't wear crosses. I'm like, but it is so instilled into the culture and into, you know, from church leaders that my grandma, when she um, got baptized and was converted to Mormonism, like she would still sometimes wear a cross. And my mom Mm -hmm. would be so angry at her, like actually be like, take that off. You can't wear that to church. That's not appropriate. You know, like Mm -hmm. tell her not to, and would get so angry. So I brought this up like kindly to my mom. I was like, Hey mom, have you (laughs) seen this? Have you seen like what that these are crosses now and my mom was like shook she was like no i did not and i said i'm not mm-hmm. crazy i've i've told sam recently i said please tell me i'm not I crazy i don't care 
Yeah, please tell me I'm not crazy, right? And I'm like, the thing is, I am fine with the church going whatever direction they want. That is fine. If they want to go and become just another mainstream Christian church, I'm that's fine. They have every right to do whatever they want to do. However, what I don't appreciate is being gaslit. And that yeah. now the idea that like the next generation is going to be like, we've never had a problem with crosses. Look, yeah. there are pins on Google Maps. And I'm going to be like, no, you don't understand how much we stood for and how symbolic and all these reasons why our church doesn't use crosses that was instilled in us our entire lives is being tossed to the wayside, like you're saying, and making me feel so gaslit. So that's the question that everyone is asking right now. Why not crosses? Uh, Benjamin, oh. <laughs> what, 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 do you, what do you say to that? Why not crosses? You know... I'll admit, I probably don't mind nearly as much as some people probably would. We don't, I don't know that we are as anti-cross in Christchurch, for example, as the mainstream LDS was. But what bothers me is the gaslighting, the way you put that. I'm like, yes, it's gaslighting. Is this idea that it's not, and they're not just gaslighting us. They're gaslighting every Christian who pulls up Google Maps and wants to find a Christian church. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but Mormonism is not mainstream Christianity. It's not creedal mm -hmm. Christianity. Our origin story begins with a boy going into a grove of trees and asking God and God himself answering that the creeds are an abomination. So pretending that we are creedal Christianity is just not true. It's not real. Yeah. And we, you know, and so, and so that's, that's really what bothers me the most. I, when people ask me, for example, they'll say, are you Christian? I'll say no. But no. let me explain. I do believe in Jesus, and I do believe that he is the Messiah, and I do believe a lot of things. But my views about what all that means, I recognize that is different than mainstream Christianity. There are some very important points of agreement that we have. But I think it's disingenuous for me just to say, yes, I'm a Christian, as though they can assume what that means. That They can assume that that means all this other stuff. Yeah, right. good for you. That was something that me being raised LDS, we were constantly told to push this. We're just any other Christian. We're just a Christian. We're just Christians. How dare people say we're not? We're the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're Christian. We're Christian. And that was mm -hmm. something that we were always supposed to be spreading, this idea that we are just like other Christians. However, then once mm -hmm. that kind of opened the door, then we were to tell them about this extra stuff. But even mm -hmm. those extra things that make our church special are being taken away like just recently. And I don't know if you've seen this, like on the church website, the LDS church website, and they have like the frequently asked questions and it's asked like, do Mormons believe that they get their own planets? I think it's worded planets, worlds, however it's worded. Yeah. And the answer is obviously yes, doctrinally. And they said, no, no, they do not. This is something that people who fight against the church characterize the church in such a way. And I was just, this was, this was probably the first time, it was like a year or two ago that I felt a little gaslit. And I yeah. went again to my mom and I said, hey mom, out of curiosity, like I just wanna know I'm not crazy here, but I was taught my whole life right. that we become like God mm -hmm. and how create our mm -hmm. own worlds and be able to have our mm -hmm. own spirit children to, inha to inhabit these worlds. Like this is what I was taught. Is that what you were taught? And she's like, yeah, why? <laughs> She's like, of course. And I said, well, because they said they're telling people that are asking this question, they're telling them no. And that really bothers me. And she was like, why would they want to deny the one thing that like one of the most important things that made us special? Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't know. That was the thing that was supposed to mm -hmm. make us 
better, I don't want to say better, but like more special than all these other Christian religions. You know, that's how I was raised. Like, yeah, they believe in Jesus Christ, but like we know the fullness and that means that we get to become like God because that yeah. isn't in mainstream Christianity. You don't become a God, you become angels, you know? And so like, mm -hmm. she was like, why would they want to take away? Why would well, they want to take, why would they want to take that away? Right. Yeah, exactly. um, it's and, so and you know, this goes back to Mormon fundamentalist doctrine. What about this? Is this that's the Adam God doctrine essentially? Mm -hmm. The idea that we are descendants from gods and have therefore have the same potentiality to become like they like them. That Adam created the earth. God, Adam was a god, so he could create the earth. And Adam created the earth, um, being called Michael, the archangel at the time, right? But then Michael becomes Adam. And then we get born on the earth with Adam and Eve have children and that's us. So we're not just, we're not just random bits of clay. We're not just a creation. We're not the antithesis of God. The way that Christianity has it is that man is the antithesis of God, right? We're like, no, yeah. humans are gods in embryo that we can become like God, not just hang out with him. Such an important doctrine, but more and more downplayed because it doesn't fit with Christianity. Why doesn't it fit with Christianity? Because all those doctrines are connected into this Adam-God doctrine concept. Uh, but the mainstream LDS doesn't want to see see all of those connections. And so there's denials of parts of it and acceptance of other parts of it. This is kind of the Bruce R. McConkie version of Mormonism, if you look at Mormon yeah. doctrine. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, you know, he's like, no Adam God, but yes to all the implications of Adam God. And we're going to imply that maybe it's a, it's the Adam God doctrine is only okay if there's two Adams, the God Adam and the man Adam are two different Adams is kind of the, the way that Bruce R. McConkie put it together. But now we're just getting closer to being like, nope, forget it. Yeah. yeah. Were you taught that within mainstream Mormonism, like in the eighties, you're saying that you learned a lot of fundamental um, truths. Were you taught the Adam God theory? Did you know about that before these later journeys? I wasn't taught it being called that, okay. but I remember being taught in, I, I, I was in Institute, the Institute of Religion in college in the early 2000s. I was taught explicitly um, by CES teachers that Adam was the son of God. Okay. Um, so th this two Adams theory that I was mentioning that Bruce R. McConkie was teaching, that was explicitly taught to me in Institute. Because I didn't know what the Adam God theory was at all, I'd say, until our faith journey. So I don't mm -hmm. know, what was that, like five yeah. years ago? But the Adam God theory was very much taught in the FLDS church. And so mm -hmm. that's just the way I was raised, and that's what I believed. And when I started talking about different things about the Adam God theory, Melissa was completely thrown off. Like, <laughs> like what, what are you talking about? But I just kind of assumed <laughs> that everyone knew that. You know, that's one of the funnest things with our young missionaries in Christ Church. Uh, uh, same thing uh, as in the mainstream. Uh, when when young men are 18, graduate from high school, all that sort of thing, they're often encouraged to serve a full-time mission. And our young full-time missionaries from Christchurch, some of them come from, have been raised in it. Uh, you know, most of them have been raised in it. They come with the most adorable naivety because <laughs> they're super familiar with like super deep doctrines, including, as I was saying in Christchurch, some like things that people associate with Eastern philosophy, the chakras, all, I mean, all kinds of stuff that they're super familiar with. And they're just like, but all Mormons believe that, don't they? And I'll be like, no. <laughs> 
they're blowing they're blowing mormon people's minds right like yeah. Yeah. You, you, would, you would think that person of the lds faith would be like the prime investigator for christ church because of similarities but do you find that it's harder to convert somebody who's lds into christ church because of how different they view or they think okay i wasn't taught any of that and it's so different or is it easier because they have some kind of basis you know um it it is easier I would say probably 70-80% of our converts come from the mainstream LDS, and then oh, wow. the remainder is about half and half people of mainstream Christianity or no religion, people who are main, main, main Americans um, type, type backgrounds, um, and, and other Mormon fundamentalist groups, you know, or independents. Can I ask where you typically go or send your missionaries to teach people or try uh, to sure bring people into the church um they are commonly in the western united states and uncommonly everywhere else we do believe in traveling without purse or scrip so our missionaries generally rely upon charity uh, of hmm. people feeding them giving them money for gas or food or shelter um, things like that. That's hard when you're a young man. I will say that means that we generally seem to focus on Nevada and Utah the most um, because there's enough members to take them in. <laughs> I've never seen one of your missionaries that I could at least recall. What do they look like? What do they dress like? They often do wear ties. They almost always wear colored shirts. Uh, we do have little name tags. Gee, I've got one. Maybe I should go grab it. We have little name tags that say Christ Church, the branch and elder so-and-so. Uh, but they're white name tags with a little green olive leaf uh, design, olive branch design. They're not always two by two. Sometimes they're three or one at a time even. Um, uh, so I don't know how much they really stand out. Uh, I understand you guys are in Nevada somewhere. And uh, mm -hmm. the missionaries were actually telling me last night they just got back in. Uh, the missionaries came in real late at night, and they spent the morning tracting in Las Vegas. Oh, we live okay. in Las Vegas. Yeah, so interesting. Okay. Who knows? We might knock on your door. I, we would. I love feeding all missionaries of all faiths. So if they ever need <laughs> a meal, they are always more than welcome at our house. Yes, that's true. Cool. Um, I'm just so curious because I was, you served a full time mission, Benjamin. I served a full time mission uh -huh. in Chile, and so I know what that experience is like. But for me, I would go to almost any random person on the street and they had already heard about the Mormon church, right? We, yep. we would ask them, you know, have you heard about us? And, oh, yeah, Los Mormones. So they'd all heard about the Mormons mm -hmm. for the most part. For your missionaries' uh, experience, I imagine it's very different. Or, or do they go by the mm -hmm. Mormons or the Mormons? Well, they don't. We don't ever. We, we try to be careful not to in. Uh, to ever imply that we are representatives of the mainstream LDS church, right? Yeah, we usually start off with things that help them understand that we are a t uh, that we are a branch of the Latter Day Saint movement, that we are part of, uh, you know, part of Mormonism at large, mm -hmm. uh, and that is one of the reasons why it is often easier for mainstream Mormons to um, to convert in a lot of cases because what they will do is they will see. Uh, in us, those things like, oh, but I thought that we could become like God, and now they're denying it. And gee, I thought that we didn't use crosses, but now they do. And there's all these changes that have happened. And so that often becomes something that we can talk to them about. Several of our converts, uh, one 
came from originally came from Catholicism in his upbringing and the other ma mainstream LDS upbringing that came into the into the branches converts so several a few years ago was a big thing for them was the temple changes just like it was for me they were mm. they were looking at well if they're changing the order changing the covenants and the women aren't going to veil and they're not going to covenant to their husband anything and they're not going to have a relationship with their husband during the endowment in any way particularly then what's the endowment for it's this changes everything so fundamentally that it's not the endowment anymore so what do we do right um so it, it's helpful to start with something but yeah I, i'll admit we don't have the kind of success that the mainstream does we are a high demand religion it's difficult you know we we say uh, we're not a 10 percent church we're 100 percent church we uh we believe in consecrating we believe in gathering we believe in building a united order community where we grow our own food and we build our temples and it's a full lifestyle you know wow speaking of your temples really quick here i did have a question about that in the mainstream lds church Oftentimes, you know, they will build a temple and then they will have an open house, as they would call it. People can come mm -hmm. and, and check it out. But once it's once the services are being held there and it's been dedicated, it's closed off to the public. Is that similar with your temples or could someone come and visit even though services are being held there? Our temples kind of have um, levels, I guess you could say, of of that. Uh, we do and have often allowed non-members to come to the baptistry because we do baptisms of the living and the dead there. So non-members have to be able to go there if they want to get baptized anyway. Um, so even if they're, but even if they're not intending to be baptized, they want to come and they want to watch their ancestors be baptized or their friends baptism or things like that. They can come into that portion of the temple. Um, we have solemn assembly rooms. We have held funerals and things like that and non-member family and friends and people like that can come into the solemn assembly room what about a marriage if someone's getting married in your church and i imagine you have the the temple Silly. ceilings and all of that <clears throat> if, if a non-member to that family wants to be a part of the marriage in some way are they allowed we actually have got a tradition going that is probably a little bit too broad in my opinion but it seems like almost every couple that i know has had three weddings uh, which is like a bit much. Uh, so what we'll usually do and usually do first is a private sealing ceremony. And that's not even all their friends. It's usually just the couple and the sealer and the witnesses and their immediate family members. Hmm. Then they'll sure. usually go to the justice of the peace if it, they want to have a legal marriage. Um, a lot of the young couples still feel like it's important for them to have legal recognition of their marriage. I personally discourage that. I think that uh, the, the, the state, the government, doesn't need to be involved at any stage in any of this. Uh, the state's not going to be involved in any of the plural marriages anyway. So why involve them in uh, one of them and not the others or something? You also can't break the law by having no legal marriages. You can only break the law if you have a legal marriage. If you have zero legal marriages, you can't break it. Anyhow, um, and that goes for almost every anti-bigamy law in existence even outside other jurisdictions. Uh, and, but then they'll, then they'll have a social wedding and that's the one that everyone comes to. I see. And that's far more tip, far more typical, far, far more mainstream. And that's generally what we do. Um, we will have, you know, the great big party come down the aisle, do all kinds of stuff like that. And that's what everyone attends. And that's the wedding. The other one is the ceiling. And if they also go to a justice of the peace, that's, the licensing and legal stuff. I see. 
I never thought before about the fact that if there was no marriage to the first wife, then they wouldn't be able to prosecute you as polygamous at all. Like I hadn't thought about just not having it all be spiritual marriages and not having any legal ones. There would be no, that's very interesting. It's a very good point. We've heard the other side of it. We've heard, you know, if Utah would just let every single marriage be legal, then the men would have more accountability towards the women if those plural marriages didn't work out, whereas right. they don't have any accountability. I mean, that could be a good idea. Yeah, just because this this woman in particular was saying that if a plural marriage doesn't work out or the man becomes unfaithful or whatever happens and that plural marriage no longer lasts, they're like those women don't have any legal rights or claim to their husband's property, to their husband's money, to their husband at all because they were always just a spiritual wife. And so right. then legally they can't get those type of things. So that was another side mm -hmm. of it. But I hadn't thought about the just having no marriages at all would hmm. also work. You know, the other thing too, though, is there's, there's still, but family law, okay, I'm an attorney, by the way, so, and I've been a family law attorney, so I could okay. get into that um, a little, but I'll just say very briefly instead that, you know, family law is pretty adaptable. It would be so easy if they wanted to, to allow plural marriages to be legal, uh, because we already basically have something similar through what's called a paternity action where you can hold anybody accountable for their relationships, regardless of whether or not they're a marriage, even now. Uh, you've heard of alimony. There's something called palimony, um, oh. where if, literally if you provide the living and support for another human being for a number of years, and then you stop providing that living and support, they can actually sue for alimony, and jokingly called palimony. Um, oh. They'll be like, look, you supported me all these years, and now you're just dropping me? Like you need, a, I need a certain time period where you continue to help pay for my living. Well, I get on my feet. Interesting. There, there's all kinds of ways that this can be handled. If someone is the father of the child, you can go to a paternity court and say, this is the father. He's responsible. It doesn't matter if they were married or not. So as we've glossed over this a couple of times. And if, if you're not comfortable going into depth, that's okay. But we had mentioned in previous videos about the mainstream LDS church doing baptisms for the dead. And mm -hmm. we, we gloss over this, but to most people watching this video, baptisms for the dead seemed so crazy. Like what in the world are <laughs> these people doing and why are they doing it? So right. do you feel comfortable explaining what that means to you and why you think it's important? And I'd like to tag on to that also. Do you feel like you have to do baptisms for the dead for the same people that the mainstream LDS church has already done the work for? Do right. they need to be rebaptized within your church? You know, I'm going to start with rebaptism as an interesting term. We believe in the doctrine of rebaptism, uh, as in we believe that a person can get baptized multiple times during their life. This was practiced in their early Mormonism. Um, Brigham Young was probably baptized 50 times. Joseph Smith himself, even just in the church history, was baptized at least five times. Right, people used to do this. Um, it used to be pretty common. Rebaptism was a common thing in the FLDS church, and I didn't realize mm. that it. I, I thought that was completely a Warren Jeffs thing. So that's why I said, "Oh no!" I'm. Like, <laughs> I didn't realize that it was ever 
practiced before in early mm -hmm. days of the church? Oh yeah, I was practiced a lot. Uh, anytime that you were embarking on anything greater or important, for example, like a ceiling, you were going to get married, you would usually get rebaptized to commit yourself to have a fresh start for your new life, things like that. So we do believe in rebaptism. So it's perfectly fine to rebaptize the living or the dead as many times as they may wish. Um, but why baptisms for the dead? We share a history with the mainstream LDS temple work. Right, but we generally think that in the in the late seventies, when they took out the original garment, that the ordinance work stopped being valid. They stopped performing it in the same manner, and therefore we believe it doesn't count anymore. Uh, and so, generally, up until nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight, we accept that the temple work was valid. Anything after that time, we do our own separate record, but we generally keep the same record up until then, because we okay. believe that. Um, it was still substantially similar enough that it counts as an endowment. The the covenants, at least, were the same. I see. Until then. But why do we do baptisms for the dead at all? You know, it's interesting. Every culture has its own death rituals, its own rituals of remembrance. Uh, Christians like to put flowers on graves. Jews, when they visit a grave, they'll place a stone on the headstone. Uh, there's different ways that we try to remember our dead, uh, whether we're saying a prayer, lighting a candle, or doing something, right? In Mormonism, baptisms for the dead strikes me as along the same lines. What we're doing is we are saying their name. That's the sacred thing, is that we are, we're remembering them, and we're saying their name, and we're calling out to them to have a renewal of life. And how beautiful is that with the conjunction of life and death coming together? that we're going to use a symbol, uh, baptism is a symbol of death and resurrection. And we're using that as a way of remembering our dead by calling out their name and offering them a chance to have their sins remitted. Well, they've already lived an entire life. Every sin that they've ever committed in their whole life is in the past because they're already dead. And we're offering them a chance to have the promise of this union between life and death and these symbols of death and resurrection to say, in spite of all, in spite of their death, there will be a resurrection. In spite of their sins, there will be a redemption. In spite of all of the pain and suffering and wrong that they may have ever experienced, it will all be washed away in this sacred, in these sacred waters. Every tear they ever cried in their entire lives can be washed away in the power of, of Christ. To me, it's a beautiful way of doing a remembrance. And I think it's probably best if we leave it in that category of thinking, thinking of it as a sacred remembrance of our ancestors. I the see. only reason we run into trouble is because like the mainstream church, they decided they wanted to baptize everybody. Well, mm -hmm. for example, there's a difference. In Christ church, we do the work of our ancestors. We don't do the entire world. I oh, see. Okay. So is it... Is it necessary to get from prison to paradise in the next life? Yes. Because I know like within mainstream Mormonism, that's what I was taught as to why it was so important to do the entire world. Because basically people are in this prison and miserable. And the only way for them to get from prison to paradise is to be able to have that ordinance done for them, which is kind of sad anyway, since most of the world will be sitting in a prison. But Right? Sounds terrible. Yeah, no, I don't take it that literalistically. I don't oh, okay. look at it that way. Paradise okay. and prison are different mindsets. Uh, there are people who are mentally imprisoned by their own uh, negative ways of thinking now. And if they can break free of that, they can enter a paradise of life 
where they begin to see the lights and enjoy the the world, you know, instead of feeling mentally imprisoned by limiting beliefs, limiting ideas, you know, things like that. I think the spirit world's the same way. I believe that they can intermingle. They can, I don't oh. think that there's like a prison, like bars, you know? Okay. So baptism for the dead within Christ church, isn't a like actual liberation out of prison. It's more of what you were saying, which I like a lot more. <laughs> which, I, which, which That could be an analogy for it though, right? If you're imprisoned yeah. by the guilt of your past, you're imprisoned by your sorrows, you're imprisoned by your limited ways of thinking, then here's an opportunity at redemption turn to the light, you know? So that's being freed from prison. So, but I, that's what right. I view that as. I view that as an analogy, not like some kind of literal dungeon so or something. Do you think that's what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young were referring to is more of an analogy or an actual, this is necessary in order to, in order for eternal salvation that you are baptized into the church? Oh, I, I, I think that it is necessary for salvation to be baptized. Um, but I do think that that's what they meant by prison and paradise was probably not the types of physical legal ways that we think about it. I think that it is an analogy. <laughs> so will the rest of the world, if you're doing your ancestors work and you are just meant to do it for your ancestors and you're calling out their name and doing the baptisms mm -hmm. for, for your own dead, basically for your own familial mm -hmm. dead, then when would be the opportunity within your theology in having the rest of the world be able to make those covenants and be able to be baptized? Is there going to be a baptism for the rest of the world and the people who are already on the other side of the veil? Or what does that look like? Well, as far as I can tell, what that looks like is um, this, this should bring up another central Mormon idea that we're all one family. You keep going back, and then you uh, you work your if you work your way back, and then they work their way down, and one generation comes from the past, and one generation comes from the future, and we try to connect ourselves. We're going to find out that we're all one people. We're eventually going to find out that we're all connected, and yeah, eventually it will be for everybody. But uh, we only have a few hundred members in Christ Church. We only have these two temples. We're not running them day and night. Um, we do these original, the original version of the endowments, right? Which takes us like six hours or something like that for us to go through this entire experiential drama. Uh, we'd be out of our minds if we thought we were going to do that for billions of people. It's, the math doesn't add up. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so right. we're, we're doing the best we can and we're, and we're connecting with our families. But I do think that, yes, eventually all mankind has the opportunity to become like God because we have that common heritage. Well, that's the Adam-God doctrine in a nutshell for me is that if we're all descendants of the gods, we're all connected, right. then we all have the same potentiality. We have the same inheritance. We have the same nature. So yeah, eventually everyone gets that opportunity. I just don't think it's necessary for everyone to do it right now. Think about it this way. Plural marriage, okay? I believe in plural marriage. I think that it can be a beautiful thing. Uh, a lot of these families feel like this is a glorious opportunity to to have an infinite amount of growth and more family and more love. Uh, and I think that's nice. But uh, what about all the people who die without getting married or, or who are monogamous? Not everybody is going to be a polygamist. Again, the math doesn't add up. You can't make everyone be a polygamist. Well, to me, that's just another hint that it was never God's intention for everyone to be to do any one thing. That's why we have the degrees of glory. That's why we have all these different. That's why Mormonism has a very universalist, but also a very diverse afterlife concept. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's not for everybody, and that's fine. 
So if we're having some people have the priesthood right now, but it's a small group and the most people don't, or if we're having some people have plural marriage right now and most people don't, that's not an accident. That's not a bad thing. That is the plan. Everything's, you look at the world right now and people will say, well, you know, there's problems on the world and there are, I don't want to downplay the suffering and the war and the apostasy and the death and all the problems that are in the world. But at the same time, I want to point out this is going according to plan. I think this is the way it was meant to be. It's okay. Not everyone has to be a member of Christ church. Not everyone has to be a polygamist. Not everyone has to get their endowments right away. Some people want this. Other people don't want this. The last thing I want to do is make somebody who doesn't want this feel like they have to go do it because then they're not going to appreciate it. You know, it's like, eat your donut, kid. Eat your donut. You're going (laughs) to like it. You know, it's like, I think it's, I think it's delicious. If you want it, you want it, but I'm not going to make other people eat my cupcakes. So the question that I would have then is because in the mainstream LDS church, it's very much taught that everyone needs this for eternal salvation. It is a part of God's plan this is the truth. We have the truth. People need to hear it. So based on your perspective, if it's meant for some, it's not that big of a deal. This is what we want. This is what is working for us. Why send missionaries? Why why convert other people to it if it's not the ultimate thing that everyone has to have? Because I do think it is the ultimate thing that I want. And I think that there's many, many other people who also want it. And that, there, and that, as Joseph Smith put it, there are many who are only kept from a knowledge of the truth because they know not where to find it. So our missionaries aren't going out there necessarily because we think that we have to convince everyone to, to believe like us or be like us, but because we do believe that there are many thousands or millions of people out there who are earnestly seeking, greatly desiring the blessings that we're enjoying, and we've got to find them because they're meant to be in our family. They're meant to be with us. You know, this is a somewhat uh, sensitive topic for me, but uh, my I'm married. My wife, Danielle, um, she was out there in the world and wasn't a member of Christ Church. And the prophet came to me and he said, you have to go out there and find your wife. Go and rescue her. She needs this. She wants this, but she doesn't know how to find it. And I don't know who or where she is. The Lord doesn't told me specifics, but I know that you need to go out there and you need to find her. Hmm. And to me, that that was that's like the the perfect kind of missionary work, where it was like, here I went and I looked and I found her, and she had been wanting and searching and pleading for this for so long, and to be able to say, welcome home. Like, that's what missionary work is supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be about us shoving it down somebody's throats. It's about us finding our long-lost family and bringing them safely home. Hmm. So just giving people the opportunity to hear it. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Along with what you were just barely saying, just wanted to point out, you mentioned that you do have a prophet. Yes. Where, um, yeah. where did your prophet lineage start or come from within Christchurch? I guess we didn't even ask how old Christchurch is, like who founded it, how long it's mm-hmm. been a church and how your prophet lineage. And then along with that, I know this is a, turning into a really long question, but I think they'll yeah, kind of go together with the answer. <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> but along with that, I'm guessing, do you, you have priesthood authority and where do you believe your church's priesthood authority comes from as well? Right. So you heard on Peter Santinello the way that I was kind of, uh, I like I like to throw this back on people a little bit. 
people almost always assume their own point of view and then only look at other people's point of view in reference to their own point of view. In the mm-hmm. mainstream LDS church, we're usually called breakoff groups. Why? Because they view themselves as an original <laughs> source and other right. people as having left or broken off of them. Absolutely. Because, because they're um, the largest, right? Right. So I, I, and that's also because they're the largest, but that's why I love to tease that like, well, no, they're the breakoff group because <laughs> they might be bigger, but they didn't stay with the original doctrine. We're the ones yeah. who kept our covenants and stayed put. They're the ones who left. They're the ones who went somewhere else. And that's what actually, um, that's actually what apostate means. It comes from the same Greek word as apostle, believe it or not. It means to, to go forth or to depart. So an apostate mm-hmm. is someone who's departed the faith. An apostle is someone who came from the presence of Christ and went out to the world to teach, right? So they both went somewhere is where that common root word comes from. Anyway, so where did we come from? Well, I always like to start with, we do believe ourselves to be a continuation, a legitimate continuation of the church established by Joseph Smith in 1830. But where's the differences? And the differences come as things break off, right? One little bit at a time. Uh, we are generally considered Woolleyites because we generally accept that line. Okay. Um, so 1886, um, the revelation of 1886 to John Taylor is uh, a revelation we continue, continue to uh, accept as canonized scripture in our church, that some men were set apart to continue practicing and teaching plural marriage and other things by John Taylor in 1886. Uh, so that is one of our breakoffs, I guess. But the way we view it is a little bit different. We view it as there was a, there's a tree. Uh, this analogy comes from Jacob chapter five. There's a like you think of the church like a tree, and then the branches of the church like different little breakoff groups, right? Uh, mm-hmm. One went one way, one went another, but they all come from the same original source, right? There was one tree. Uh, we kind of believe that the whole tree went bad. And this is what it says in Jacob chapter five, which we believe is a prophecy about the latter days. Um, that when it's time for Israel to be gathered again, the entire tree will be rotten, all kinds hmm. of bad fruit. And that, and so all the different branches of Mormonism are basically all just different kinds of bad fruit. None of it is the full, the good fruit that God's looking for anymore. Uh, and that good fruit, we believe, is the fullness of his ordinances, the fullness of his priesthood that brings us into his presence. Uh, and so since nobody's actually coming into the presence of God anymore, they're just doing their own things or trying to keep their own beliefs or do their own ordinances, but not actually parting the real veil and coming into the presence of God. They're not fruit. They're not actually harvestable. And so um, what happens in Jacob, and this is one of the reasons why we're called the branch as our nickname for the church. It's Christ church or the branch usually is that we believe that there's an original branch and an original root. And that if we can, merge those together, um, we will be able to have all the blessings again. So what is the tree? We believe it's what's called the times of the Gentiles. The restoration was to the Gentiles. It went forth to the whole earth. The gospel was preached in every land, every continent, in every language. Uh, The Book of Mormon is available in just about every literate tongue in the entire world now. And so I count that as a prophecy fulfilled. It went to the whole earth. But here's the scary thing in those prophecies. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's in the Book of Mormon. It's a bunch of places where it says that when the gospel goes forth to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles will not fully receive it and that the fullness of the gospel will be taken from among them and restored to the literal blood of the house of Israel. 
And so that's what we view our role as. We're not necessarily a break off of one of these branches of the original tree. We believe the original tree was cut down in the 1970s and that the original root was being called to be grafted back into the original branch and root, reunited as the times of the Jews or the times of Israel or what we're in now uh, to fulfill. Because whether it was the FLDS, whether it was the mainstream LDS, whether it was the community of Christ, they all changed the ordinances. They all lost the fullness of the gospel. Hmm. And therefore, all the fruit's gone bad. So yeah. our real founding founding yeah. is 1978, April 6th, 1978. Okay. April 6th, okay. Um, yeah, traditional, right? Um, yeah. Gerald Peterson Sr. was his name. Uh, he came from the mainstream LDS. He was also for a time in some of the other fundamentalist groups, originally just the priesthood work. Uh, which is in common with the FLDS and other Woolleyite type um, Mormon fundamentalists. He was also in the AUB. He was a close associate of Rulin Allred. But we oh, wow. so okay. we do generally view Rulin Allred as the last of the Gentile dispensations. So wait, um, you keep saying Woolleyites. So do you believe yeah. that John? Do you believe that John or Lauren Woolley were actual prophets? Yep. Oh, you do. Okay, we're generally because- comfortable with them. Yeah. So John Woolley was the first prophet of the FLDS church that that the mainstream LDS church doesn't claim as a prophet. Which is a little bit tricky to me, too, because, uh, and forgive me for doing this, but uh, when when do I count the origins of people? I understand that we all claim Joseph Smith, right? That's a spiritual Mm -hmm. claim. But when you say the first prophet of the FLDS, I would say... Sorry, but the first prophet of the mainstream was Heber J. Grant, by my reckoning. And the first prophet uh, of the uh, FLDS was Ruland Jeffs, by my reckoning. Because that's when they oh. organized themselves as a separate entity. Ruland. Yeah. Wow. Ruland Jeffs. The, uh, I mean, you, the, uh, the Centennial Park people, they went their own way. Mm-hmm. Under under Rulin, and then Rulin did his own thing, and it wasn't and and the formal legal organization of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints wasn't until the 1990s. Right, it did change a lot, but if you ask the people of the FLDS, they strongly. I mean, you take my 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 own father for example, mm-hmm. and the prophet before Rulin Jeffs, which the prophet before Rulin Jeffs, his name was Leroy Johnson, and the Centennial mm-hmm. Park group believed that he was a prophet. And they split mm-hmm. off when Leroy Johnson died, before Ruland Jeffs became the prophet. Right. But my father has, I mean, the amount of respect and experiences that he has with Leroy Johnson, he would absolutely disagree with that statement. Oh, well, I'm not saying, I'm, uh, uh, but again, I'm not saying this, uh, the spiritual claim, of course, there's a connection, right? But, um, but we always assume our own point of view. Ask a Centennial Park person. Um, when the FLDS went wrong, and they're going to be like, oh, well, we believe in Leroy Johnson, but we don't believe in Roland Jeffs. Correct. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's like that prophet, the prophet lineage. Now, I understand the FLDS position goes all the way back to Joseph Smith. It does. Correct. Just like all of them. Yep. Yes. Just like all of us. But yeah. when did they become distinct enough that a big major, that uh, that there were these major distinctions, like between Centennial Park, for example, and the and the FLDS? Well, that that was clearly around L- Rulin Jeff's time, and it was under Rulin Jeff's that they organized legally as a separate entity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I say the same thing, and it upsets mainstream LDS people all the time when I say, "No, you're not Brighamites; you're Grantites." 
because <laughs> because um, when John Woolley and Lauren Woolley were doing these other things, and and Musser, of course, Joseph Musser, you had all of this turnover in the Quorum of the Twelve, in the First Presidency, in all kinds of places in the mainstream LDS Church. And then what does he do in 1923, almost exactly 100 years ago, Hebrew J. Grant organizes a new legal entity. The Corporation mm. of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that is the actual beginning of the mainstream LDS church. And congratulations, a century is nothing to be ashamed of. Your church has been around for about a century, I tell people in the mainstream LDS. And they're like, well, no, we go back to Joseph Smith. Like, we all go back to Joseph Smith. I'm not saying you can't believe that, but that's a spiritual claim, not a literal organizational. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. If you want to know when someone broke off, the mainstream LDS started their thing in 1923. Broke up with Hebrew J. Grant. Yeah. Well, and like you said, yeah. with the with the analogy of like the tree, right? If Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor are mm -hmm. the base and the roots or the base of the trunk, and you're looking mm -hmm. at where all of them separate, then yeah. Yeah, but if you go even sense. further back, the, uh, the you know you've got the Community of Christ, right? They'll be like, yeah, we like Joseph Smith, but then there's Joseph Smith the third who was the next president, not Brigham Young. Exactly. Yeah. Even yeah. further and further and further. So. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's so, a, that's an interesting view there. That's something that I think a lot of people don't even consider anything beyond the spiritual claim, like you mentioned, the spiritual claim of these are our prophets. Mm -hmm. These are the people we hang on our walls and and remember as mm -hmm. prophets of our church. So interesting point. But we do view their calling as a little bit different than ours today. Uh, so, like I said, we have this two phase idea that there was the times of the Gentiles. That was Joseph Smith through Rule and All Red, including people like Strang and who knows who else. A lot of them had a lot of interesting and good things even to contribute. But we believe that the whole tree was re was done in the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled. And Rule and All Red was murdered in 1977. And we believe that that was more or less the end of the fullness of the priesthood and the fullness of the ordinances. Uh, being in that Gentile church. And so now it was time for the times of Israel to come in. And so our priesthood claim does come from a variety of Mormon fundamentalist groups, does come from a variety of the mainstream included, um, that we say, yes, we have lineage from all these places. We have kinship. But I would say a lot of our authority claim really comes from this idea that Gerald Peterson was not just ordained in multiple groups, he was the root of Jesse, prophesied in Doctrine and Covenants section 113, based upon Isaiah chapter 11, which is that in the latter days, there would be one unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood for the gathering of the people in the latter days. And it's prophesied even in section 113, interestingly enough, after Joseph Smith, saying in the future there will be a prophet who will rightly hold the priesthood, who will gather the people in the latter days for a second time. So that's what we... A lot of times um, in most of these churches, they view it as a one-time thing. And I see this all over the scriptures. They say first to the Jew, Jews and then to the Gentiles, then to the Gentiles, then to the Jews. And they'll say uh, things like the first will be last, the last will be first. And we'll say things like gathering again the second time in the latter days. Uh, these phrases are all over prophecy, and we interpret them as meaning separate time periods, separate phases. And we believe we're in that second phase now. Okay, so you don't believe that because... Uh, Peterson, right? That you don't believe mm -hmm. that because Peterson received his priesthood through a rotten tree, that his priesthood is no longer valid, like valid, that his priesthood is still valid because it was before the tree died? Honestly, I would say his priesthood was valid anyway, before the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled. 
Okay. The only reason his priesthood was valid after the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled was because of the, those events. So okay. I'll give you a very brief overview. We believe there were, there were additional revelations and manifestations. Rule and all red, we believe, came back from the dead as a resurrected being, like Christ returning after his um, crucifixion, as well as other prophets. Joseph Smith, we believe, is resurrected, um, and others. And they came to um, Gerald Peterson, and they said, look, you have received all of these things. He'd received all the ordinances. He did, he did his first and second endowments. He had received ordination and all of that previous to the end of the times of the Gentiles. So they said, but now you have a new calling. You can't put new wine into old bottles. And it's time for you to continue this work in a bigger and broader way. So we believe that, for example, the prophecy of the one mighty and strong is fulfilled in the personage of Joseph Smith returning from the dead as a resurrected being to help establish Zion and this work. So that we And that he continues to play that role as a resurrected being so that we can establish the new Jerusalem, so that we can build Zion in our day. Uh, so, so yeah, to some extent, we believe that all ordinances after that close of the dispensation become invalid uh, and that it's time for us to do what we're supposed to do afterward. Now, they, uh, if you were baptized before 1978, we would still consider your baptism having been valid. If you're ordained before 1978, maybe you were ordained validly, but are you part of the God's work actively? It's kind of a different we have that different way of looking at it. So, for example, priesthood. You're asking this about an ordination line throughout time, throughout history, as being the way that you look at priesthood. A lot of Mormons view it that way, that uh, our connection to Joseph Smith historically is what gives us validity. Hmm. I don't really view priesthood that way. We don't necessarily view priesthood that way. Your connection historically isn't what gives it validity. It's your connection in the present that gives it validity. Are you connected to a priesthood holder who's connected to a priesthood holder in a priesthood line in the present that connects to a prophet who actually speaks beyond the veil to God. Interesting. So it's less about who ordained you. It's more about who's your current priesthood leader. If your quorum president has a quorum, has a president who has a president who's a prophet and that prophet can part the veil and receive the revelations of God and give you the instructions of God, then you have valid priesthood. If you don't have that, then where's your connection to God? Your connection to God is through dead people, through history? Well, then you're out of order if that's the case, because it's about the present connection with God, your present relationship. Yeah, and I guess with the priesthood too, more than just like lineage, I mean, Joseph Smith obviously received the priesthood from beings that came and gave it to him, right? So. Um, yep. I guess that was kind of my question too, is more of do you view priesthood as a lineage or like you're explaining or where he, Peterson saw, you know, the resurrected beings of Joseph Smith and he has this connection directly to God, whether or not it is a fresh connection of priesthood, I guess is what I was meaning is if you believe it mm -hmm. as a lineage connection or if it's more of that direct connection. So you answer my question, right. in that it's a direct, more of a direct from God from those founding prophets connection, because I guess like whenever I view like other, I remember I one time dated the son of a Baptist preacher and uh -huh. um, my parents weren't very happy about that, but <laughs> being raised on the yes. But I remember asking, I was like, Oh, how does your dad get his authority? 
yeah. as a preacher. And he was like, what yeah. do you mean? Like, what, what, what do you mean by that? that? And I was like, well, who told him that he's like, you know, authorized to be preaching? And he was like, well, he went to seminary. And I was like, okay, but like, who, who teaches seminary? And then like, where do they get there? So you're right in the sense that like, when you're raised LDS, there definitely is this idea of lineage of that your authority has to come from somewhere, even mm -hmm. if it is a direct from God. If you saw a vision from God and that's, and God directly gives you the power of God in the form of priesthood, you know, that is also still in my mind acceptable, right. but it's really hard for me to ever get out of the realm mm -hmm. of there has to be that connection to God in order to get that authority. Right. And, and I believe in both. I believe there was a historical ordination line and we do do that. We do track that. We do think that's important, but I don't think it's as important. I think the most important thing is your live relationship. Um, to actually being called of God. And so this is one of the examples I like to give people when they to think about the way that I think of it differently than most other Mormons is who would you rather follow? Who would you think is more authoritative? Someone that you have seen God himself and Joseph Smith ordain to the fullness of the keys, powers, and authorities as a prophet, seer, and revelator, and they've done it right in front of you. You know for a fact this person was ordained, but they do not perform the ordinances. They do not obey the commandments. They do not... They do not even offer you baptism. They say, no, I don't I do not do that stuff. I don't believe it. I don't care. Yeah, yeah, it's true that I was ordained by Joseph Smith and or, or Russell M. Nelson or Jesus Christ himself or something like that. I know that I was ordained validly, but I don't want to do it. I'm not into that stuff. I'm out. Would you rather follow that person or would you rather follow a person who says, I've never been called. I don't – it was never ordained to anything, and everyone knows they were never ordained to anything – but they obey the commandments and they do believe and they do try their best. I'm like, between those two, we're isolating this variable. What value does the ordination have? I can tell you right now, I would be far more likely to follow a prophet and consider someone a prophet who was never ordained to anything, but was filled with a love of truth and a love of right and a love of goodness than somebody who's like, screw it, I don't care. And yeah, I was ordained, but so what? So ordination itself can't just be the end all be all. Right. Gotcha. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that's definitely a different view from the way we yeah. were raised in that you have to have the direct line. So that person had to receive it from someone that ultimately received it directly from God. And there has to be mm -hmm. this direct link down the line from each person to make sure that it is the correct priesthood power, as they would say. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. fun to see a whole different perspective on it. Like I enjoy this a lot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But you know, it is it is one of those things that's kind of funny to me too. You've got people like Brian Hales, I don't know if you're familiar with his work either. He did the Joseph Smith polygamy volumes, but he also has done a lot of work on Mormon fundamentalism. And he'll always uh, but he's an apologist for the mainstream LDS church, right? And he will always say things like, It doesn't matter if um, Lauren Woolley was properly ordained by um, John Taylor or not. It it doesn't carry over you have to be obedient to the leadership of the church you know mm -hmm. um and it probably wasn't valid anyway so he will go after lauren woolley because he thinks if i can convince you that lauren woolley wasn't a priesthood holder then you have no priesthood right i'm like no that doesn't follow at all hmm. if, if lauren woolley was complete or brigham young I, it's popular right now to bag on brigham young um people want to <laughs> say he was, he was terrible or something you know? <laughs> and i'll be like you know what if you're right, I feel sorry for poor Brother Brigham, but that literally changes nothing about my faith because wow. it doesn't rise or fall on just the one guy. 
it's it's a whole body of truth and knowledge and culture and love and and bad stuff too that has been carried throughout time and what i'm more worried about right now is do i have a connection to god now if it turns out that my connection to god doesn't include lauren woolley or doesn't include brigham young it's a pity for them because i think it's great and i guess they're damned or something right but it wouldn't change my priesthood right it wouldn't change my priesthood because what about uh, what about what about Joseph Musser? Joseph Musser, who ordained Leroy Johnson, I believe, right? He, um, as well as Roland Allred, as well as Gerald Peterson, he received his first and second endowments from Lorenzo Snow. Even so, even if even if the eighteen eighty six meeting never happened, even if Lauren Woolley's office rocker, Joseph Musser's a perfectly valid line of priesthood, as well, even without him. There's so many connections. Right? Yeah. So where does the basis of the your of Christ's church. So if it's not Brigham Young, if Brigham Young could fall and it, that doesn't matter, is it all just down to Joseph Smith? Is it all down to that one man that, <laughs> that restored everything? Because if, if none of them matter at all and priesthood can just kind of pop up wherever and can have, well, validity, and I don't know if it just pops up wherever. I'm just saying that it's not a line. <laughs> it's a web. Okay. But, I, but the web still had to start from somewhere, right? You'd have to you'd have to convince me that every one of these lines is invalid. Yeah, but I'm just saying. So, is Joseph Smith to you the main? I mean, there has to be a starter of the web. So, without him, none okay. of this web anywhere would be possible, right? Or the temple ordinances that you hold so dear wouldn't matter at all if it wasn't for a restoration. Because it wouldn't have been restored, from, right? Because it wouldn't have right. been restored. <clears throat> Excuse me. Exactly. You so. know, the more I've studied ancient history, like. Um, when I've studied Adam Kadmon in the Kabbalah of Jewish thought and how this relates to Adam God doctrine. And as I've seen the way that I was talking about the garments representing the ancient Levitical sacrifices and how all these things are done, the more I am convinced that Mormonism is an ancient truth. This is, this is my, my personal beliefs. This is my faith. I think I see it everywhere. I see it in Tibetan Buddhism. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so Mormon, you know, in different places. <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to, um, maybe, maybe this is a broader way of putting it, but it doesn't even just come down to Joseph Smith. No, it doesn't come down to anybody. It doesn't come down to holding on to anybody's coattails. Truth is truth. And now I do believe Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and, jo and John and Lauren Woolley and plenty of these people taught truth. And I, I, I'm grateful for that, but it's not about them. It's not about a person. It's not about Russell M. Nelson either. It's not about anybody. It's, it's about these eternal truths. It's actually, and this is, this is, this is scriptural. Book of Mormon, uh, Book of Alma, uh, chapter 42 talks about how the pr these principles are so eternal that if God Himself did not follow them, He would cease to be God. Hmm. But God doesn't cease to be God because God fulfills the principles. God fulfills laws. God is trustworthy. But if he were not trustworthy, he wouldn't be God. Well, what is that saying? That's basically saying this doesn't even depend on God. Okay? This isn't even just uh, me not saying um, we don't. it's not just about Joseph Smith. Jesus Christ himself, if he did not behave like a God, would not be a God. It doesn't even depend on him. Which is, wow. sounds, sounds terrifying. It doesn't even depend on God the Father. These are truths, are truths, are truths, period. God is God because he fulfills, embodies, and and lives the law. Um, but if he were to change his mind and be like, I'm out, I'm going to become a devil, 
I think even God has the free agency to do that. He's just kind of um, more dependable than that. Huh. So what? who determines truth then? Is truth not coming from God? I think truth is not subjective. I think that's the point. God is not, I don't think that God is a subjective being who's just making stuff up willy nilly and, and pleasing him is pleasing to him just because we want to make him happy. It's because he knows what is good. Right. So yeah, I don't think that it's subjective. I think truth is objective. Wow. So does, is that coming with the idea that every God has a God above them? Partly, I suppose, right? Because uh, if if we can become like God, then did God become like God? That's uh, Lorenzo Snow's uh, Lorenzo Snow's teachings. You know, here, here's how far back the Adam God doctrine goes. It was in 1836 that Lorenzo Snow made the couplet: "As God, um, as man is, God once was; as God is, man may become." I've heard yeah. that. That was written down in Kirtland. Hmm. Um, after Joseph Smith taught the Adam God um, concepts to Lorenzo Snow in Kirtland, uh, and so yeah, maybe that's that's part of it. But I guess I guess the point is is that that me that makes it, it possible for me to have faith. It makes it possible for me to have confidence in God because I know that He's not going to be petty about it. Hmm. That it's 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 testable. It's true. Um, there's another quote from Lorenzo Snow. I believe this one's in the Journal of Discourses. So, so this is all the, already in the Utah period. Lorenzo Snow says that it is the people, not just the leaders in Mormonism, who gain the knowledge of how to part the veil and speak with God directly and be, not just believe but know God for themselves and to receive heavenly manifestations from God. And no one, and no one who has not made themselves obedient to all of these ordinances has any right to have an opinion on the matter one way or the other because they haven't done and i'm getting a little bit more prayer phrasy as i go on basically what i felt like he was saying lorenzo snow was saying is until you actually have the fullness of the priesthood and the ordinances you don't really know if you've had them or not because when you do get them it's real it's testable it's it's more science than it is just faith it's a repeatable right. experiment. If you will do certain laws and you will do certain ordinances, you will get the results. And it's as dependable as repeating the same science experiments that people have been doing since Galileo, you know, or, or Sir Isaac Newton. And then you can just see it for yourself in science class and go, wow, it does work like that. Isn't that yeah. amazing? So, so do you believe that the the ordinances and the covenants that you make within your church are necessary in order to return back to God? They do open the veil, is what I would say. They do make it possible for people to come into God's presence. And there are a great many witnesses to that fact, not only from early Mormonism, but the miracles continue today. One of them that I thought was interesting that was cut by Peter Santanello was a talk about miracles. And uh, one of the women who was there, you see her in the background, but he, they cut this out of the interview, was a woman who was healed. She was a quadriplegic. Wow. And she can walk. She can <laughs> do everything. And she did not have the use of her legs or even the full use of her arms, only partial use of her arms, for years with all this nerve damage and all of these things that were supposedly unhealable. And she was healed by the power of God. 
I mean, so miracles aren't going to convert anybody. I'm not telling you this because I think you, I should, you, people should go, oh, wow, there's miracles. must be true. Uh, that doesn't convert anybody. But when you are converted and when you do these things, like the original true full temple ordinances, like the fullness of the priesthood, yeah, I believe it's real because I've seen real results from it. Uh, and I think it should be repeatable, just like any science experiment in any classroom. And then you'll know for yourself because you went ahead and did the experiment. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that that's an easy task either, though. There's the whole broken heart and the contrite spirit and all that stuff that you have to do. You have to sacrifice. Uh, the lectures on faith talk about how uh, lecture six, if you ever read the lectures on faith, which, which are still canonized scripture in Christ church, lecture six talks about how it's not enough to believe that the course of life that you're pursuing is acceptable to God. You have to know, most assuredly know, Otherwise, you'll never be able to to overcome all of the trials and, and persecutions and difficulties that have attended the saints. So how can you go from, well, I believe it's true or I hope it's true to being like, no, I know what I know. Well, that means you have to gain that knowledge. Well, how do you do that? According to um, the Lectures on Faith, it it's a process and you have to sac be willing to sacrifice all things. But when you do make that sacrifice, the Lord will give you such assurances that you will know and not merely believe uh, hmm. that, wow. that what you have to suffer is worth it because you will, yeah. you will not just believe in that eternal rest. You will be able to see it on the horizon with your spiritual sight, and you'll be able to know that you're headed toward it. Yeah. Something, wow. that, something that everyone does want to know, uh, obviously, in most cases, <laughs> when it comes to fundamental Mormonism, uh, Mormonism there is polygamy involved. So yep. polygamy, is that a very important part of the church you currently belong to? And is it something we have heard a lot of fundamental groups will say that not only is it important, but you must have three wives in order to get to the highest degree of celestial glory. What are your thoughts on that? So yes, it's important. And yes, we have it. We have polygamy. Um, we have plural marriage. And it is an important doctrine, and I do think it's an exalting doctrine. So when people say, well, you need it to be exalted, I, I think that there's a basis for them to say that. But, then these are some big buts. I wouldn't say it's the central tenet of our faith, um, but it is one of the crowning jewels, perhaps. Um, and I would say, so when, when we say what's necessary, well, for example, we were talking about baptisms for the dead earlier. Is it necessary to be baptized before death in order to be saved? Well, not necessarily. There's always more opportunities. Is it necessary to be married before you die? Well, maybe not necessarily. There might be more opportunities. But I do believe that God is an expanding, growing person, a, a growing community of the gods. There is no point where God says, thus far the Thus far thou hast come, thou shalt go no further. There's no limit. So I would say that if people embrace Mormonism, at least according to like the sealing ceremony as it originally was, that we seek to be obedient to all the laws, rights, and ordinances of this holy order of matrimony. If that's what our goal is, our covenant is, then that means it's going to have to grow and keep growing and never stop growing. So I believe that God continues to take new wives even. 
Hmm. So not only that God's a polygamist, but that God could take another wife in a thousand years from now. And a thousand years after that, God may take even more wives. So there's really no end to the okay, possibilities so you, for growth. I but see. that doesn't so you, mean that you have to cross a particular threshold in any particular moment. I let see. alone in this particular life. Right. Right. The, but I think that there's two trajectories, basically. Uh, this is where Nephi talks about there are saved two churches only. And I think that, or, or even Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, uh, if you go on and get into the philosophers, there's kind of two trends. Are you trending toward life or are you trending toward death? And I think that if you're trending toward life, you're going to look for opportunities for growth, for children, for love, for friendships, as well as for spouses. There should always be more room. The home has expandable walls. So there's always room for more growth. Does that mean that everybody needs to rush out and have 12 kids that they're not ready for? No, <laughs> it doesn't mean that. <laughs> but it does mean that if you're a 12th child, you're still valuable too. You still have a purpose. It's not like, but, I'm sorry, there's already 10 kids here, so number 11 is, is useless, is, is garbage. No, every soul has value. And we all have the opportunity to continue to increase life. And that's what I, I think God's work and glory is, to increase life. I see. So if I'm understanding this correctly, polygamy is a doctrine, a very important doctrine from God. God himself is a polygamist, and, but it's not necessary for everyone. I think what is necessary, though, is for everyone to make their decision. Do you choose life or not? Do you choose love? Or not if you're and and this and so this isn't necessarily about the polygamy question usually unless it happens to be if there's a woman in who's coming up to your marriage that you love that you that the whole family loves and that want and says can i receive love can i be part of this and you say no we choose to reject you we choose to reject this opportunity then yeah i could see that as a sin but Generally, it's, I guess, I guess here's another way of putting it. There's a way that the world would put it. I see it as, a, as an orientation. Maybe it's like a sexual orientation. You can be gay without being engaged in homosexual acts, right? You can be what you are regardless of uh, what your current romantic situation is. So I've always been a monogamist, um, but... I've also always been a polygamist. I might not have ever had more than one wife at a time, but I want to be the type of person who always chooses love, always chooses life. And I think that that is essential for every person to choose. What are you going to do when the time comes to choose? Do I want children? Do I want grandchildren? Do I want friends? Do I want brothers or sisters or wives? Do you choose to be inclusive or exclusive? Right. So here's <laughs> devil's advocate here because, and I'm sorry, I, I, hesitate, I hesitate to even bring this up, but along those lines, there has to be more to it than that because along those lines, mm -hmm. you would have to agree that if mm -hmm. a wife or a woman wanted to take on another husband because of love, why would she limit that? Why mm -hmm. would that not be okay for her to have multiple husbands if it's all about love? Right. Um, well, we do believe in gender roles, and so that's usually where that ends up coming into play. There is, we don't necessarily believe um, 
in a gender hierarchy as much as we believe in gender roles. Uh, and so that usually isn't the case. There is some room uh, for those possibilities, though. There are times when a, uh, we call it the law of Joseph. If you think about Joseph uh, and Mary in the Bible, God the Father, we believe, took Mary as his eternal wife and that they had the child Jesus. So that Jesus is literally the son of the Father. That's what it meant, uh, we believe, that she was taken away in the spirit. Um, and, and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, that she was literally taken out of the mortal world into the presence of God, where they were sealed in the celestial temple, and that she became a bride, and she's called the Queen of Heaven, even by the Catholics and things like that, right? That Mary is this the mother of God, therefore the wife of the Father. And yet, could the Father give her a mortal life on this side of the veil, very effectively? Could he be there for her when she's throwing up with morning sickness? Could he, could he um, do the dishes? Could he help out in the ways that um, a spouse needs to help out? No, he couldn't. And so he sent his angel to tell Joseph that it was appointed unto him to take her as his wife. And so she had two husbands, but she didn't do it just willy-nilly. And we also don't believe that men have any right to take wives willy-nilly either. We do believe in a somewhat kind of more of a placement marriage type system. We believe that it should be inspired. It should be divine. And that's not to say that people who date don't find the right person, but that in many cases we are poor judges maybe, but, uh, but that, but the one it really comes down to it, if we're going to live a divine union, uh, not just a marriage, but a celestial marriage, a godly marriage, it has to be appointed by God. So, but here you go. There's an example of someone, I believe, Mary, the mother of God in the most holy manner possible, not to denigrate it at all in a very holy way. She had two husbands. That's sort of, you know, and, and any time that, and, and so we don't believe that necessarily if a, if a woman is widowed, she has to be single for the rest of her life or that, um, or even with a living husband, she couldn't have another living husband, but it would have to be by revelation. And it probably wouldn't be a free for all. We are very conservative sexually, uh, right. Uh, Mormon fundamentalists, we we're usually shy to even talk about such things. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but in general, you're right. The principle has to extend further, and I think that it can. But even in the limited way, we don't encourage people just to run off and marry a bunch of wives because they love them. Okay. Any, any man can find an excuse to find a woman he finds attractive to be someone he would want to be with sexually. That has nothing to do with celestial marriage. Celestial marriage is about your spiritual obligation to love eternally, to bring them into a celestial order with you. That's not just about sex. That's about, you know, divine sacrifice and an eternal sacrifice. It's not about whether or not you're even getting along. You have an obligation that's eternal when you're in a celestial marriage. Wow. Thank you for answering that. That is very interesting view on that perspective that generally we don't hear anyone look at it that way. So thank yeah, you. We Honestly, I could stay here and ask you like millions of questions all day. We won't keep you here all day, but we really do appreciate you being willing to share your faith with us, to share your perspectives, your knowledge. You just, I don't know, it's just been so fun. It's also been so, I don't know if validating might be the right word, like in 
my pursuit for truth personally, there's been so many things that I feel like other people don't look at or haven't talked about. And so I've really appreciated you being willing to talk to us and and to hear some of those like validating things like the garments. I feel like I'm the only person in the whole LDS church that ever thought or cared about the original temple garments that ever cared. And I was like, I'm just this crazy person for even like looking or thinking or talking about this. So thank you for validating some of my feelings yes. as well. Yes. We appreciate it. But I do have one more question. Oh. If I didn't ask this question, then everyone would wonder why we even had this interview. <laughs> and I'm just kidding. But in Peter Santanello's video that we reviewed or we did a reaction oh, yeah. video to that, in the prayer, you were holding your hands a certain way and had a, a hat on oh, your yes. head. And oh, and I question. and I had never seen that in any Mormonism break off or mainstream you name it I've never seen anything like that so mm -hmm. I looked at that as something that you had changed or not you specifically that your church had changed mm -hmm. different or is that something that they did in Joseph Smith's that day? It's fundamental. Actually, um, the you guys almost got it when you're like this is weird I've never seen this and you go well unless it has something to do with the temple. Mm -hmm. I, I think I was the right. one I was going to yeah. say, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I can't say never before. And, and it, yes, it, it remind me of the temple. So, so fundamentalism is usually backward looking. We're looking back toward um, the early church as though Brigham Young and John Taylor did everything right. Well, that's not necessarily my view. I think that it does have to be ongoing. We need an ongoing restoration in that sense. We need to continue to grow, continue to receive revelation. Um, it was Gerald Peterson Jr. who had a revelation about that the idea that the symbolism, but it is connected to the temple, of our coverings. You know, a woman wearing a veil, a man wear, covering his head with the mitre or cap is, is a sacred thing for us to do in prayer. It's not a requirement, but it is something we often do in prayer or in ordinances. Um, but there were other things in that video that I'm just like, oh my gosh, people are going to think that's part of our church and it's not like... Um, not under like the plate. Betty, uh, Betty with the, the cloth and the plate. And yeah. that is that is Betty's thing. And like, okay. don't get me wrong. In our church, we have a wide variety of faith and practice and opinion that is allowed. We, we aren't pharisaical about this. You can have differences of opinion on things and still be in full fellowship with our church. In fact, broad differences, differences with the first presidency. I remember I was in a solemn assembly and I thought that the prophet was off track on a topic. I thought he was pressing a point into a kind of an absurd conclusion. And I raised my hand in solemn assembly and I said, sorry, brother Michael, but you're wrong. And told him why I thought his thinking was wrong. And he's, and this is in the middle of his talk, you know, and he said, thank you, brother Benjamin. And he backtracked. Wow. wow, that's awesome. I hope you saw in our video that I thought that the Betty thing, I was like, I think that's a different thing. I, I didn't see that as being part. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah. think I mentioned that in the video, but I'm glad you're clarifying as well now, because I was like, that seems like a more of a personal thing. And, and I think you'll find that in any religion. So, but yeah, having, having things like our hands upturned and covering our heads, those are all temple references. And we do believe that the temple is essentially instructions on how you can have a full priesthood life. Um, they're tools essentially given to everyone who receives the endowment. They get a certain set of tools. If you never use those tools, why would you get them? They're like the garments even. If you're gonna be given this as a gift, you can do what you want with it, but but you should, you might as well use it. You've got all these tools, let's put them to use. Let's not just pretend they don't exist or not never talk about them, things right. like that. And so. Um, but yeah, you have to be able to talk about it. You have to be able to explore your faith, I think, in order to have the freedom to really find faith. 
And so many churches, they clamp down on that and be like, follow the dogma, you know? And I just feel like dogma is the opposite of faith. Policy is the opposite of revelation. Mm-hmm. You know, what we need is access to God, to the divine experience. And that's so often antithetical, unfortunately, to organized religion. What is one thing, if you feel like, that is possibly misunderstood within your faith, or one main message that you would want to give to all of our viewers watching that you feel like is a misunderstanding? I think the main thing that I like uh, that I want to say is we're all people. There's a lot of prejudice. People are really afraid of polygamists. People really uh, will persecute. Um, don't be afraid. Just ask us. And, and please, let's all treat each other with dignity and respect. Yeah. Uh, building bridges is really one of the main things I do in missionary work, and I hope that I've been able to build a bridge with you today. Yes. yes. Thank you oh, so much. Thank you so much. And that, that, I love that. That's something we always try to do here on our channel is to make sure that, you know, we try to understand where people are coming from instead of just judging. So thank you so much yep. for sharing your experiences and your life, I guess, with us. We really do appreciate you being here with us today. Yes. Thank you so much. And if any of you watching want to hear more about what it was like for Sam to grow up in polygamy, please like and subscribe. And thank you again, Benjamin, for being here. And we'll talk to y'all soon. We'll talk to y'all soon.